I will say that we have not had to do this for a while in the uh, rain. Uh, no. So if it sounds like uh, we're outdoors in a rainstorm, uh, we basically are. So there you go. <laughs> Everybody got to miss the uh, garage, not the garage, the uh, garbage uh, dump from uh, that, that. That is the loudest thing, I swear to God. Yeah, garbage trucks are loud, clanking pieces of metal. There's no question there. So we'll just get through this, and uh, if you got a little bit of uh, background noise, uh, deal with it. <laughs> How was that? That's kind of mean. Nothing you can do about it right now. Okay, we're going to focus today on uh, one single topic. Uh, it will consume God knows how long. We're going to go until we get tired, and we're going to talk about banking. Isn't that right, son? Well, in particular, the it's in the news. Um, it, it hit last week, but you know nothing was really concrete, so there's no point in speculating on stupid stuff that you know just to agitate people or scare people, as the rest of the media has spent the better part of the past four days doing. Um, but we're going to talk about these bank failures that have happened, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate Bank, and um, uh, the one in New York. I just lost the name of it. So there's an uh, interesting series of uh, situations going on, and we're going to relate a lot of what happened in Silicon Valley. It bails, it bails. It, it comes right down to the failure um, a very simple misstep, a failure to match deposits, longevity, basic fundamental banking principles. It's not a giant conspiracy. There are people on the left, and there are a lot of people on the right uh, who are saying things that are completely insane, including politicians of a higher standard that you would expect. There are people even in the financial services industry. We should even say, for example, Kramer, uh, the bombastic uh, talking head on uh, CNBC, said just uh, the week prior that uh, Silicon Bank was a great bank. Yeah, he specifically said a week ago, or I guess two weeks ago now, that Silicon Valley Bank is a, is a solid buy with a price target of somewhere around $320 a share. Which is a joke because people have been talking since December. There's a notable article in um, Seeking Alpha, I believe, which is a, a trader website um, that specifically breaks down their cash flows and says that they're they're a blow up risk. So they've you know this bank has been on the radar of all of the regulatory agencies and everybody of any substance for months, um, and it comes down to. The public found out about this with their regulatory filings because they are a publicly traded company. So you can figure out very quickly what their what their ratios are and, and kind of get a good feel for how the bank is faring in the increased interest rate environment. It's important also to remember that no matter what the name of the digital media outlet, and I use digital media because I don't think anybody prints a paper anymore other than maybe the Daily Sun down in the uh, villages. The Wall Street Journal had a headline, and the headline is one of those, you know, scare everybody into, you know, fire, fire, pants on fire. The, it's an opinion piece, and it's by uh, Andy Kessler. But the title is, Who Killed Silicon Valley Bank? And I think, you know, you've got to be really blunt about this, is that using words like imploding and killing and 
deposits disappearing by breakfast. These are all phrases that are just gotchas that don't do anything to uh, calm the irrational mind into thinking through the thing. No, of course not. But there are some int- there are some um, truths in those words that are utilized, and we'll, we'll get to some of that. But you know, there's this entire situation is um, not indicative of the system as a whole. Um, this is the, the bank failures we've seen so far are fairly unique, and they have their own reasons and rationale for why they happened. But the other thing is, is that we don't have a situation that is repeating the past other than it's there's certain familiar elements but it's still very different and people across the board but in particular your let's call them the uh the mob on twitter and facebook seem to uh see patterns that they have witnessed in the past particularly 2008 and they think this is that repeating again and you know sure there is the potential of that because of um, let's call it uh, the mind virus and the average person in the population doing dumb things. But the reality is, is this is caused by an entirely different type of problem. And in general, I agree with the Federal Reserve and the Treasury that this is not generally speaking a systemic risk that other banks are vulnerable to. Unless every idiot out there in the world starts putting their money underneath their mattress and then you have a serious problem. So we're going to break this down kind of methodically. And if we lose you, I'm going to ask you, you got to stay with it because we are going to use the Silicon Valley Bank, the blow up, the run on money, what the Federal Reserve is doing, what the FDIC is doing, what everybody is doing, uh, and explaining the rational, calm, cool, collected approach that um, these guys are doing and did, uh, which will counterbalance the insanity of the, um, I don't know, we'll call them the Alex Jones types only because I'll just use his name. I mean, they're just screaming, like I said, Chicken Little out there. This is kind of a cool thing to uh, study. If I was uh, teaching a college course uh, or at, at university, I, I would use this as like an immediate, this is an immediate uh, semester-long program. Yeah, this is, this is a, a, a classic education on risk. And just because you buy something that is super valuable and maintains its value doesn't mean you can sell it, Do, right? Right. And th- that's really what this all boils down to. Well, here, I'll give you a real simple. Uh, years ago, back in the 1980s, uh, it could have been in the 70s, but there was a fella or gal or, or group put together a thing called Pet Rocks. Yes. And uh, Pet Rocks came in various different different formats, but basically uh, you, bought, you bought a pet, a rock, and they put it in uh, some uh, soft tissue paper and um, kind of like um, bedding, and it was in a box, and you, they, you bought a rock. And yep. uh, some people put little eyes on the thing, and there were some knockoffs, and, and those folks made a lot of money. Uh, they also, it, it was a fad, and it was done. Uh, Beanie Babies were the same way. Uh, I remember, you know, being dragged. Circumstances are, aren't important, but I had to go to Georgia to see Beanie Babies be born. And Oh, boy. Yeah, the whole process. It was one of those. Now, it's comical. Beanie Babies have retained a certain amount of value. It's just they're never going to reach the peak again. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like being stuck in a small world a ride in Disney. It was. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah. yeah. 
you, I, I actually jumped out and threw myself into the water to commit suicide, but it's only you know two inches deep, so I didn't couldn't do it. <laughs> but basically, here's I'm going to give you kind of the setup. And Paul, uh, I'm Paul Truesdell, the elder. Joining me is Paul Truesdell, the younger, and uh, this is called the Paul Truesdell Podcast. Two Pauls in a pod. Because we're going to talk about companies, let me get this out of the way. Instead of dropping in our audio, this is for educational, entertainment, and uh, encouragement purposes only. Uh, we have a registered investment advisor. Uh, name is Truesdell Wealth, currently fixed cost financial. Uh, we're going through a name change. It's the home of fixed cost investing. That's our trademark and service mark. And so anything we talk about is not a recommendation to buy, sell, or uh, at all. This is just for informational purposes only and uh, govern your actions accordingly. Now, this is all about management risk and management mistakes. So what happened in essence uh, over a very short period of time, and, and Paul's going to get into the intricate details of it, and I'll take more of a high level on this and kind of tie it to and ground it to what I would say uh, 90% of the population will understand. Not that he's going to go over your head, but he's going to give you some information that, you know, you just got to pay attention to. Uh, but when you have 42 or more billion, uh, and that's a B with a, a that's a billion, um, which represented about 25% of all of their deposits, uh, customers trying to withdraw that within a very short period of time, literally 48, 72 hours, you're going to have a... Um, In this case, it was 24. Yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a collapse. That's what triggered the FDIC uh, to move what we believe... Uh, well, technically, it's the state. The state refers it to the FDIC. I, I didn't know that was the process until this whole, whole thing went down. Yeah. But technically, it's the state bank regulatory agency that is ultimately responsible for saying nope, you're shut down, then the FDIC takes over. So it, it, it takes a, a, a state and a federal uh, relationship, and it's each have their own responsibility. So I just thought it was important to mention that because I don't think most people do. I think most people think it's, it's just the feds and it's just Biden or it's just Trump and it's just, you know, it's arbitrary and it's not. It, at a later time in today's uh, podcast, I'll bring up the, uh, what, the role of the, uh, the 10th Amendment, states' rights, how you have uh, comptrollers of the currency on the federal level. You have various state regulatory agencies, and it's uh, a Byzantine, uh, eclectic, discombobulated uh, series of laws, rules, and regulations that are oftentimes overlapping and conflicting in the world of banking, savings and loans, credit unions, broker-dealers, investment advisory services, insurance, you name it. It's a, it's a damn mess. On the other hand, you have to understand that uh, if you want to go all uh, federal government and uh, throw all the states away, it's not how the nation was founded. So it is what it is, and you can get your underwear out of your crack and uh, relax because we're going to explain things, and I'll come back to that. So in 2020, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, we'll refer to that as SVB or just Silicon Valley Bank, uh, they had about $55 billion in deposits. That's a lot of coin uh, by anybody's standard. But then by the end of 2022, or two years, okay, 2020, 2022, they had exploded to $186 billion. Paul's going to explain to you a little bit how that came to be. And in essence, they truly were a victim of their own success. Again, remember what I said, um, you have pet rocks and beanie babies. These are fads. 
And a lot of the banking that we're going to talk about is fad, meme, startup-based banking. It's not the rock-solid manufacturing of, uh, of, uh, of toothpicks, let's say. Okay? Big, big, big difference. So what happened is you have a lot of these deposits are the result of initial public offerings. And some of these people were doing SPACs. Uh, another way of taking a company public without having to go through the rigorous due diligence. And uh, we'll probably touch a little bit on that. So the bottom line is a lot of this money came in uh, was a result of uh, venture capital money, uh, people with a lot of money, not necessarily a lot of uh, common sense, and uh, a lot of IPOs, a lot of startups. And the, re- the bank had a very strong relationship with uh, startups. Take it away. Yeah, they... The bank's been around, well, it was around for 39 years. Um, and it's interesting because you had this big run-up in, in, their, in their deposits. And that is, like you mentioned, the different reasons. But the other, the other reason for it is if you look at the capital raising of these large firms from 2000, uh, basically, to the end of 2019 through... 2022, uh, well, or let's say uh, end of 2021, so that t- roughly two-year time period during COVID, a tremendous number of companies, because of the market and different other circumstances, uh, were unable to IPO. So you had companies that, you know, they had uh, planned on IPOing within this kind of time range, and instead they were forced to go back and raise even larger sums of money, further diluting their existing investors to build the capital necessary to stave off the need to IPO. Because, again, Silicon Valley, a lot of these really large companies do not have the uh, wherewithal uh, to actually sustain themselves yet. They don't have, they don't have any profits. So they, a lot of these companies planned on IPOing, which gives them the runway necessary to supposedly come to profitability. As we all know, that's been kind of hit or miss in, in tech IPOs in the past 10 years. And I think it's, what's important to remember is that a lot of this stems from COVID. Let's be real blunt. Because oh, absolutely. It's COVID, but it's also the market that happened, you know, the downturn in the market because of COVID. Exactly. And so as a result, when you allow the federal government, in this case, to allow states, and you have states other than Florida and Texas, to impose draconian uh, processes, uh, lockdowns, uh, you you kill the ebb and flow of everything. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you, we're going to tie a lot of little concepts together. We may not explain a lot of things because they're not, it's not necessary. So feel free to take a note, jot things down. But when you have just-in-time manufacturing, just-in-time delivery, when you have inventory optimization, where we have just the barest of minimum to meet the needs because we have this artificial intelligence algorithm, Al, from 2001 Space Odyssey that tells us, oh, Bob's going to breathe four more times in the next three minutes because he walked two steps. Therefore, we're going to adjust the temperature on the AC by one fraction of one fraction of 1% in temperature. When you start to try to regulate life like that to such a small degree, Guess what happens when Bob does not actually walk, but Bob passes gas and the whole algorithm goes haywire and pretty soon the alarms go off. The fire alarm uh, causes them to the fire to respond. Everything breaks. It is literally you cannot get things to such a finely 
tuned area. And that's why cash, pure unadulterated cash, is really important. Liquidity is important. Having some flexibility is important. We lost all that because of, uh, again, Trump and Biden, uh, Trump and Biden locking down the country. So as a result, IPOs got locked down and everything got sideways. Yeah, and there's even more, like, what do you call it, uh, further issues that are still propagating to this day because there's all kinds of rules about the length that you can retain, um, you know, private options, and, and all, there's all kinds of weird stuff. So, you know, it, it's creating, it's it's continuing to create problems. But for the case of Silicon Valley Bank, um, that's a large, that and, and other things uh, that you mentioned uh, are, are a large reason for their increased deposits. Um in general, though, the Silicon Valley Bank is a people I, I've seen on social media are claiming that this is a collapse of the fractional reserve banking system. No, it's not. And <laughs> and it's not because Silicon Valley Bank is, is a very, very loan light uh, uh, institution. They really didn't do a ton of lending. Um, the lending they did do was very short term. Uh, so they didn't really involve themselves in what you'd call traditional banking practices. Uh, which is part of their problem. And I think it's important to jump in and say this. What a lot of people are doing is they're attributing what they know and understand to this bank. So, for example, you know and I know that a lot of our clients have between uh, anywhere from, I would say, on the low end, 50000 on the very, very low end, 50000 and on the high end to probably one to two million dollars of cash. Uh, I'm not talking about under their bed. I'm talking checking accounts, savings accounts, uh, money market accounts. But we have a lot of clients that have between one and two million dollars in cash as part of their investment portfolio, as part of their working capital. Yeah, absolutely. Not unusual. For those of you who would say that's crazy, um, well, no. It's, it's all numbers. Uh, you have to understand if you're retired and you have a spouse, if that spouse dies and you lose your, your a pension and Social Security, a big reduction. If you have, for example, a prolonged downfall in the market, you know, two, three, four years, uh, you don't want to touch your portfolio, which is something we preach uh, diligently, but you have a reserve. You have cash, you have near-term cash, you have short-term. And so with what we do, and you do a phenomenal job with talking to people about it, it's just amazing. Uh, Paul's is, is so able to talk to people who are quite literally 50 years and 60 years older than him. Um, you have an amazing way of doing that. There's nothing wrong with cash. No. You can't attribute the rates of return on cash to the market, but at the same time, when the market's down, that's exactly what you pull money from. So I say this as a setup to get you to understand, I get it that you might have a hard time thinking of a million dollars in cash, 10, $20 million in cash, $100 million in cash, or in this case, billions of dollars in cash. Yeah, so you know, you've got a lot of companies out there who raise a lot of money. Um, we fast forward to 2022, the uh, interest rates are rising. The market is not near, doesn't have nearly as favorable opinions of these startup companies and the prospects because people are focused on profits and viability instead of uh, magic uh, 
pie in the sky, crazy ideas, which is of course uh, what most of Silicon Valley is based on. Um, so throughout 2022, fundraising or, or let's call it, uh, yeah, fundraising for companies, uh, for venture-backed firms starts to slow. And a lot of firms uh, also, uh, because of what we said, you know, the reduction in IPOs, uh, reduced liquidity. So you had a, a slowing of, of, uh, of deposits where you had a, you basically had the reverse. And, you know, so inside the bank, think view it like this, you know, you have your inflows and your outflows. And for the case of Silicon Valley Bank, for the majority of their existence, they've had a more inflows than outflows, right? Yep. But they're also in a unique position where they also maintain a lot of pure cash reserves, which, which is very unusual for a lot of banks. Um, a lot of banks, you know, they maintain whatever they've got and they're lending out as fast as possible to get interest because in general, people who have uh, small, you know, in, 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 as far as banking goes, small uh, accounts are generally, it's a phrase you, you like to use, sticky money. Well, and I'll give you a good, a good example. Um, in the Valley, uh, we've been there more than a few times, um, and, and, but you have wineries out there. Uh, a winery is a manufacturer. Yes. Uh, they manufacture something to consume and drink, but it's not manufactured on a daily basis. It's a... Seasonal. Yeah. It's a very seasonal thing. So businesses that are seasonal uh, have to have a lot of cash. Uh, you Absolutely. Have to, you have to manage... Uh, geez, what's another, what's another industry that we all rely on well, that would be called farming. So farmers have to have big, big amounts of cash. They, they have to have, yep. you've got to do it right. So they have a long-term time horizon for these kinds of things. So, yeah, we had a, a recent article that came out that said, oh, my God, if Silicon Valley Bank goes under, the wineries in California will go out of business. Oh, for God's sakes. Just kill me. Um, so... You have this conundrum going on where their their outflows are now larger than their inflows, and people are actually starting to melt down their piggy banks because they have a, I think I saw about a 29% concentration in um, startup firms made up. It was 29% of their uh, deposits were, were those those types of firms. So, you know, if you have a, a, a less liquid uh, fundraising environment, um, yeah, they're going to start to melt down their assets more aggressively than they would have in the past. Which, you know, over over 2020, we've seen a lot of companies, um, they didn't even have enough to get through a year. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of interesting uh, company, uh, let's call it shutdowns, because, you know, they weren't bankruptcies. They're just organized, um, you know, running out of money, running out of runway, et cetera. So, but the thing that's interesting is that in 2021, uh, from what I was reading Silicon Valley Bank largely understood how to manage their risk. Uh, they they understood that they needed to maintain a lot of um, uh, liquidity, that a lot of their deposits were volatile, right? You know, company A may raise $400 million, have it sitting around, they're somewhat profitable, they don't really need to use it, and then all of a sudden they want to spend $200 million to make a strategic acquisition. And... You know those kinds of of, of changes in your uh, in in your available cash can significantly affect you know the risk the risk profile of, of what you can invest in, and they very much understood that it seems like until 2021, when in 2021 they decided at the somewhere around the time when they had this massive 
increase in deposits and stuff, uh, they decided to completely change their MO, which is which I don't understand, and I, this is where I think the investigative reporting needs to be done. Um, they decided at you know in hindsight we now know it was the the low of the zero interest rate environment, right around the time interest rates started to pick up, and it was also the peak of their deposits, roughly somewhere in there. And and just and just real quickly for all of you who are clients and for those of you who are not clients who heard me uh, talk during this time frame, and I said, you remember how many times have I said you have people are putting money away in Germany in thirty and fifty year bonds at negative interest rates. Yes. Here I I don't take my money, and now it makes sense, doesn't it? It's like I don't need any more cash. I don't want your cash. There's nothing I can do with it. Okay, yes. we'll hold it but we're going to charge you. Think about these people as interest rates have gone up. Their bonds, are, their bonds were worth less than one par to start off with. Unless they're government bonds. Bingo. So like I was saying, in general, the Silicon Valley Bank had a very conservative um, approach to how they dealt with deposits, knowing that it was a lot more volatile than most banks. Um, in 2021, they decided that they would try to chase yield they started putting thing. They started to put more assets than I think they normally would into what's called them less liquid, longer term investments. So, uh, as far as banking goes, there's a couple terms that you need to know. Um, you have uh, on a quarterly basis, banks are required to report uh, and update their valuations for uh, their assets. Basically, um, you have two different categories that assets can fall into. One is called mark-to-market, and those have to be revalued every quarter. And so your mark-to-market assets are, generally speaking, your things that are uh, very liquid and easy to sell. And they're going to be things that are, at least you would hope, are things that are, are generally speaking, very stable. Uh, you know, things we're talking about are treasuries, stuff like that. Then you have your other assets. And your other assets, they call them held-to-maturity or h, h uh, TM, H2M, um, held to maturity assets. And these are things that you don't expect to ever have to sell. They're things that I'm holding a 30-year mortgage. I don't expect to ever have to fire sale this unless, you know, the world is ending. And those assets you don't have to reprice quarterly because you in you intend to hold them until the end. Right. Um, so there's no point in revaluing them on a quarterly basis. So... The issue is they started putting a tremendous amount of these um, held to maturity assets uh, in mortgage-backed securities. Now, of course, that's going to trigger you know fear and pandemonium among the the people who don't understand um, anything beyond headlines. But yes, 2008 mortgage-backed securities did cause a lot of the mayhem that that uh, that caused that crisis. But today, mortgage-backed securities are still a thing, and mortgage-backed securities are highly regulated, and in general, the ones that, that are out there are pretty high quality. Uh, the standards for what, what constitutes um, a mortgage-backed security are increased compared to 15 years ago. Right. And for certain um, investment purposes, they, I think, uh, are a perfectly viable tool. For a bank that has this risk profile, I don't really agree with that especially when the interest rate that they were able to get was about roughly 2%. So you're going to hold something that can lose value, that doesn't have a government guarantee, 
and only yields you 2% at the lowest that interest rates basically will ever get, effectively zero, right? Right. It is just one of the weirdest decisions I really don't understand. And again, this is why I think that this is the nexus for the investigative reporters who are going to talk to people, former employees, executives. If you want to know really what, what collapsed the bank, it was that decision right there. It was to, it was to purchase long-held long mortgage-backed securities. I believe they're a 10-year maturity. Why did they do that? Because that's what sunk them right there. Well, you know, the, the thing that I was, I, I've been waiting for somebody to say, and it hasn't been said, and I haven't said this in front of you, and I've held this, I've pocketed this for a while. I have been waiting to see when somebody would make the correlation between who sits on the board of the Federal Reserve, very important, in California, the relationship to the bank, and the slowdown in the housing market, and the need to get buyers of mortgage-backed securities to continue the free flow of funds, et cetera, in housing. Yeah, there, again, I, that's totally possible. There's, there's definitely something there. There was you know, nepotism. There's um, pure incompetence. So, but it's important to... to so so the, the thing is, because there is no guarantee, the, the bonds are going to be more volatile. They're earning uh, like a one, I, I think the number I saw, I might be wrong, but let's just say the number I saw was right, like 1.8% yield. Well, you do your magic bond calculations, which I'm nowhere near qualified to do, um, but I'll take some, the word of some other people who, who are. And the valuation of those bonds based on the increase in interest rates and all that that goes into it, the, the, the valuation, if you wanted to sell them right now, of those bonds is somewhere in the order of about a 30% loss. Well, on like $25 billion or $30 billion, which is what this sums to, um, that's not a tolerable loss if they had to sell them right now, right? Exactly. But if you just hold them, yeah, you're not going to earn the yield that you would want, but you're not going to lose money, right? Because they're just bonds. So, I mean, that's the issue. So, as a, to- as a short-term or, or medium-term tool for liquidity... Nobody's going to give you a good a good uh, uh, swap value, or or nobody's going to use is going to give you good value as far as collateral goes, especially in these higher interest rate environment. It's just it's 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 a bad asset to hold for the type of purpose that they need for their bank. Um, so that's the issue. It's not that the money's gone. It's just that if you need to sell it now, it's a horrible asset to have on your books. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is uh, you know, the better asset for a bank of this nature is to just hold, hold treasuries. Worst case scenario, you get dollar for dollar for what your face value is. Yep. Um, and and the, the reality is, uh, while you and I and the 99% of the population buys a treasury, if we say, oh, um, yo, uh, Sam, as in Uncle Sam, uh, we need you to do a, a special deal for us, and, and we need some cash now, even though the maturities... Are uh, are a little bit longer, and we don't want we don't want to go to any kind of a secondary market. I, I just need you to help me out and basically make this null and void. They ain't going to do that. But when you have a bank that's too big to fail, the federal government is now has a history of doing what needs to be done to make sure that the entire economy does not collapse. Yes, referring to Lehman Brothers housing, and you should understand that Washington Mutual. Or WAMU, as we used to call it. WAMU. Uh, WAMU. 
we have what's that uh, gas station? Uh, Wawa. Wawa. Yeah. Uh, but Wawa doesn't compare to uh, Bucky's. No, not at all. No, but Wamu, uh, Bear, and Lehman, those, those, in my view, unless the world ends, will never happen again. Yeah, and, and just because so you... They cause so much pandemonium that they just exacerbated the problem worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and, so and here's everybody the learned their lesson that, you know, in the, in the current environment, and we'll talk more about this later, um, but they learned their lesson that you can't slow roll the problem solving that... With the internet, with faster communication, now it, it was a matter of hours instead of, instead of days. The, the government has to act really quickly to assure everybody that, they're in, that they know what's going on, they're going to solve the problem. Because people start to panic, and now with you know, a TikTok, you, know, you can have an 18-year-old who knows nothing about anything create a stupid uh, TikTok video, and then everybody's panicking and, and withdrawing money from their bank. Uh, that is absolutely true. And, and here's the thing a lot of these conspiracy buffs are, are missing. Uh, Washington Mutual was a California-based bank. You can make the argument that the California regulators uh, were slow on the uptick to make sure this thing was functioning. True. You, you can say, oh, the Federal Reserve, or rather the FDIC, they're, just, uh, they're coming in and seizing things. No, that's what they do. That's their job. That's yeah. their job. And, and Well, so you have to remember, there's two California banks that collapsed last week, and there's one New York bank that collapsed yesterday. And well, yeah, we're going to get into that. But, but let me make it real clear to, so everybody understands. When Washington Mutual collapsed, again, I lived this. I understand it. Um, basically, it was sold off to a company called J.P. Morgan. Oh, surprise. So J.P. Morgan Chase gets it. They have $300 billion in assets, and they paid $1.9 billion for the thing. Now, nobody goes to jail over these things. Uh, it would be interesting to see if somebody this time goes to jail. I don't know. I doubt it. But I think some people are going to get some slaps at bare minimum due to items that we haven't really talked about yet. But in, in comparison to size, um, WAMU had an amazing size especially considering it was 15 years ago, 300 billion. Yeah, they were tremendous in size. For they had sure. 43,000 employees, 2,200 branches in 15 states. And I could make the argument that little old J.P. Morgan Chase suddenly uh, goes from basically 39 branches to 2,239. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a hell of a deal. That, talk about a great expansion. I, I want to do that. Although they shut a lot of those down. So, oh, absolutely. You know. But you understand. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, because they were more of a, an investment institutional bank. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, of course, there were litigation back and forth, and, that, and that's not important. But the thing I think is important here is you cannot correlate what happened then to what happened uh, last week. Uh, you cannot correlate uh, the past with what is going on in the future because there's, there's going to be a few more banks that are probably going to get sting up. And there's going to be a few people that are going to be uh, um, very disappointed because they lost well, the equity. The, the ownership of the bank just got wiped out. Yeah, so, so this is, I guess, uh, a couple other things on the history of the bank that are important to remember, and then we'll move on to the, the, what, what's happening and everything. Um, this bank in particular, again, like I said, they're very light on loans, uh, didn't, didn't really do a lot, but the, the loans they did do seemed to me, uh, like they genuinely knew what they were doing as far as, as taking on, uh, debt, 
and and lending money that made a lot of sense for the niche they were working in. Uh, for example, like I saw, I saw multiple people who were talking about how uh, saddened they are that this has happened because you know they're a startup founder. They've only ever had like you know normal people jobs. You know now on paper they're worth you know twenty, thirty, forty million dollars, and they want to buy a house and they or, or or leverage the assets they have. Well, in theory, they, they do have uh, significant assets, but most banks won't touch that. And this has a lot to do with how the banking system has evolved post-2008. Uh, and they've become a lot more strict as far as who they will lend to. Um, you know, as a, as a, a fantastic um, guy who wrote a book about the modern banking system, uh, I've read and heard some awesome interviews in the past uh, couple of years. He said that, you know, banks, the, the big banks have, are no longer run by uh, people chasing returns and they're run by lawyers. And this is very, very true. You know, people talk about JP Morgan and their, uh, their fortress balance sheet, right? Or Jamie Dimon and his, his fortress like balance sheet. And all of the major banks are this way. This is why nobody's even looking twice, unless you're a bit of a loon, at any of the major top 10 banks because they are, they are fortresses as far as how. Their assets are structured, their risk tolerances. Also, they also have, they have the benefit of being the big guys, so nobody's even going to let anything happen. But and a lot of that started with um, you know, after two thousand eight, where everybody had to, you know, you had uh, Goldman Sachs, you had insurance companies, you know, oh, well, we're going to call you a bank now, uh, yeah. and they did that because they could demand as a bank they have assets structured in such a way to be a fortress. So now you have some of these organizations that have gone above and beyond, and, and their wide moat is, is pretty wide and deep. Yeah, and, and they've, they've created um, basically just defense in depth. They have a fantastic amount of cash on their books, and this is to the chagrin of the Federal Reserve and even the federal government at times because they want more loans. They want more growth in the economy. They've, at times in the past 15 years, struggled to meet the 2% inflation target, uh, 2% GDP growth, because the banks aren't lending and people can't do things without capital, and you know it's just this vicious cycle. Um, obviously, that's a totally different environment from where we're at now, but it shows you that the banks were smart to ignore a lot of the demands of the government and say, no, we, we will earn almost nothing on our money if that means that we sit here with a ton of cash and we feel safe. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of these major institutions are unassailable. Um, and, and this was a period... that doesn't apply to everybody. There's right. tons of small banks that do, do not operate like that and have never operated like that. Right. And this, this, uh, this now requires me to say, back in the day, um, when this was all going on, you had organizations that had been around for a long time. But uh, Kohlberg, Kravitz, and Roberts were well known with the way they used to do things. So I'm... Uh, a small manufacturer, I, I, I have good cash flow, everything is hunky-dory. I can't get money to expand. I can't get money for increasing, uh, let's say, uh, cost of, um, of manufacturing uh, raw material. Something goes sideways in China and everything uh, quadruples in price. And so Kohlberg would go in and, and get loans. They would make loans to the company. But the thing that they had and still have, they have an, a, a depth of experience, meaning hands-on, and they would put people in the business, working side-by-side. Side. And I want you to talk about, just when I finish this, about how VC firms have dropped the ball 
in bringing in uh, the adults yeah, into that, the room. I have something before we get to that. But so, yes, I agree. but what what happened was, you know, I had clients. We would invest with Kohlberg, and I would say, "Look, um, you cannot invest in them directly, but they have an indirect, either an ETF or a mutual fund, and um, you know, there's going to be some layers of cost. But these guys do a great job, and it's a, it's a good business model because it's like saying, "Look, you you've got a great tool, um, but you just don't know how to do it properly, and you need a coach." And I used to use football, baseball, basketball, but basically football. Um, you need coaches that have experience in each of these areas, and you want to win the Super Bowl. So I guess the bottom line is, you know, those, those kinds of days used to be done in local banks. Uh, your local banker used to know a lot about a lot of things. Your local lawyer used to know a lot about a lot of things. And they would actually, you know, get in their car and drive out and take a look at the house and go, well, Bob, you're not maintaining your house. You know, I'm holding the mortgage on this thing. And a lot of times that local banker really was holding the mortgage. It was his, her family money on it. But you don't have that anymore. You don't have that. You know, you know I, I know Roscoe and Roscoe's family's been here since the uh, 1800s. So, you know, they, they have reputational risk that is extremely low and they're going through a bad time. You don't have that. You, you just don't have that. And I think in this case, that's another one of those issues. When you are lending money to a startup, somebody who is in their 20s, and they, it's a multi-billion dollar business, it's no different than Steve Jobs when he was thrown out of Apple and he brought uh, Scully in. You need some adults at the table. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of adults at the table, their Silicon Valley Bank did not have a risk chief risk officer for the for eight or nine months prior to this mess or i'm sorry i'm sorry prior basically 2022 red flag um and so it's important to know i, I saw this on twitter a couple days ago and i was like hmm that's that's interesting i don't know how true that is and then i saw some people saying oh look this is their their chief risk officer is this woman uh, kim olson according to linkedin and she used to work for Deutsche Bank. So, of course, all the conspiracy people are saying that, oh, they're hiring the evil people from Deutsche Bank, and we all know they're bad because they've had all these problems over the years and whatever. People keep, you know, people mentioning things like, you know, bad pennies keep turning up, whatever. Here's the thing. Uh, context matters. This woman was hired in January. <laughs> so she may be the chief risk officer, but it doesn't matter. Her decision on anything really didn't have a huge effect on stuff. If anything... Her, her prodding and, and decisions may have been an attempt to save the bank because to parlay a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier with their structure of assets, uh, rolling into the end of last year, they marked in their December uh, quarterly statement that they marked a, what, $1.9 billion loss on their, um, I don't know if it was their mark-to-market or if it was their uh, long-term securities, but anyway they marked a, a large loss because they're trying to shore up their cash position because the loss in value of certain assets and increase in lack of deposits and increase in, in withdrawals. So, you know, this is a problem that they've been working on for months and they just couldn't solve. Um, it's, but it's comical because it seems like they uh, may have made some decisions that their risk officer, uh, if I were to guess, I mean, I'm just speculating at, the, at this point completely. But, you know, you have somebody that leaves soon after. They make probably the decision that doomed the bank. Um, it makes you wonder if this person was run out of the bank or quit or quit and did they whistleblow? Were they under scrutiny or watch for a long time? I don't know. But I, like I said before, this is where 
the, the investigative reporting needs to be done. Why did they do that? And like you said, it could be as simple as uh, nepotism. It could be friends. It could be uh, under-the-table compensation. It could be a lot of things. Um, but again, it goes back to, you know, uh, don't mistake uh, what can be easily explained with stupidity. That likely is also the case, too. Well, we recently had an election here in Marion County, and we have a complete moron that got elected. And it's easily understood because, and I'll tie this to politics, and the politics relates to the way people behave to any kind of information. Both Republicans and Democrats, 10% of all Republicans and Democrats are unquestionably certifiable crazy. These are the retarded morons who, at the end of the day, you want to wonder, how the hell did you get through life? Some of them are wealthy, some of them are poor, but generally speaking, they're loudmouths who basically, they read something, they read four words, and they think they read, they read War and Peace. Now, 30% of both political parties are highly influenced by that 10% crazy, and that's what Fox understands. CNN understood. Uh, Mad Cow understands. You get these people away from their talking head uh, positions. A lot of them, as we've now learned with a lot of the Fox people, think Trump is out of his mind. But you got to keep spewing the, uh, the, you know, Pello Man and the talk uh, to to keep it going. I mean, you you have to. What the problem is then, you have 60% of Republicans and Democrats, they got common sense. They're willing to work together. They they understand the the need for, for... collaborative intelligence and getting together. The problem is that 40% of their party is easily, you know, 10% is crazy, 30% easily swayed. So now when you have a low turnout election, uh, crazy wins. And you've seen that over and over and over in the country with crazies getting in office. I could, sure. I could say it happens at the highest level. Of course. And look at Marion County. We got a guy who is... Um, if, if the IRS doesn't investigate him, if the State Department of uh, our, 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 our State Elections Commission and others don't begin some investigations, I'll be very surprised. I think we'll have another special election coming up. But that's the problem. You, you have a, a minority of people who will say things that are just completely off base. Oh, she used to work for Lehman Brothers, and so that's the reason why it felt... No. Well, you had another guy. Uh, well, no. That, that one was Deutsche Bank. I'm sorry. But there's, but there's another guy. As Did I say Lehman? I had Lehman on the head, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, there's another guy, just as an example of this kind of, you know, insanity, um, who I believe he was, he had some senior role with uh, Silicon Valley uh, Bank Securities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What and was, what he, was that he again? worked for Lehman. Yeah, okay. So... You know, that's some, where I made the connection. Some, somehow he had a horrible influence on what was going on, and it was his. You know, oh look, see, they're they're hiring all these bad people. I mean, I understand. You know, if you're if you're actually culpable of wrongdoing, maybe you shouldn't uh, continue to get jobs for doing dumb stuff. But the reality is, is this guy looks like he's in his like forties. So you're saying he was like a young guy who worked for Lehman Brothers. So is he never allowed to have a job again? Like, he might have been pushing the uh, cart and delivering papers back in the day. Literally, but, you know what I mean? It's like. Yep. Uh, but the other aspect to it, I don't think people realize, again, this goes to something we were talking about yesterday uh, regarding people not being able to see the scale of things because they're used to, you know, in this case, oh, my little branch, my little bank branch, and, you know, the 10 people that work there. They don't understand that Silicon Valley Bank employed, I guess technically still employs at the, 
they've transferred all this stuff to a new entity. Mm-hmm. Um, they employ 8,500 people. Not a like, small group. Like you mentioned, uh, Washington Mutual. Empl- how many people did you say they employed? Like 35,000 yep. or something like that? I mean, huge, huge. Uh, that shows you that Silicon Valley Bank was a much more lean operation than Washington Mutual was, right? Um, so it's interesting to consider that you know they, these banks have a lot of different... Uh, subsidiaries and a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And just because one person here and did one thing, this goes all the way to the top as far as the leadership of, of the actual bank, not the um, silly ancillary people. But this also, you know, to, to go into some, some real stuff, uh, you know, they, as part of the forced liquidation and, uh, and, and what's called dissecting of the institution, um, you mentioned earlier that Washington Mutual was sold off. The uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, uh, the British uh, subsidiary, it actually is a real British bank, and they had like, oh, I think it was roughly ten billion in in uh, ten billion uh, pounds worth of assets. Uh, I think net they have like one point eight roughly billion in actual net assets. Yeah, not not exactly huge, but again. Just like that idiot in Israel, Netanyahu, you have people in, in, in England, in London, and other places who are screaming, oh my God, there is so much innovation money here, we're going to die in the vine. Yeah, yeah. Um, How did these people get elected? Yep, the politicians. <laughs> um, but, the, but the thing that's interesting is that subsidiary is not insured by the FDIC, obviously, because they're not U.S. citizens, they're, it's not a U.S. bank. It is governed under whatever British law is, right? Yep. And they were sold off to HSBC for one pound. <laughs> because the issue is people are screeching about how they didn't get a good deal. They, they, they gave them a sweetheart deal and all of this is like, yes, but you do understand that this entire process is supposed to be completed in a weekend. It, they, need, they need it to be done. because. And the other thing is they don't have the backing of the U.S. government. So they can buy that, and they could have a flood out the door of deposits tomorrow morning, and they'll they'll have a hole in their balance sheet bigger than you can. It's you know, it's a risk, right? Yep. So the question is, is the other the other aspect to it that's also important to remember is maybe they were the only bidder. <laughs> this is not an environment where a lot of banks want to take a lot of risk. Well, it's no different than you have a, um, a home has been foreclosed on and you have a sale at the uh, courthouse and uh, nobody okay, buys. Exactly. Okay. $1. You got it, Bob. And, and let's, let's also talk about, well, I was going to mention something funny. I, I saw it's just, you know, color commentary. That's interesting. Um, that uh, in England, that this for a contract of this nature to be efficacious legally, it, there needs to be some value associated with it. So this is usually the lowest value that you attribute to a corporate contract. So it's effectively free, right? Mm-hmm. And like I said, they may have been the only one that was willing to take on the liability. Um, but uh, uh, I saw somebody pointed out that this, uh, this, this principle, let's call it, um, that a contract has to have a consideration value, uh, goes back to free, po- free property leases, and uh, some historical convention associated with those in uh, in Britain, particularly I believe England. You're um, going way back. You're going back to the 1200s now. Oh yeah, uh, where it uh, is still even to this day sometimes written that a uh, 
as quote one peppercorn if demanded. <laughs> as yeah, payment. no, yeah, that and you, so exercising peppercorns being the taxable event that, <laughs> that, that the contract is uh, is as executed underneath is funny. And this person mentions that um, uh, in a this person's obviously in, in in Britain talks about how they uh, bought some intellectual property off of a company that was dissolving. And uh, they, their, their company bought another company's intellectual property <laughs> and they bought them uh, utilizing a one kilogram container of peppercorns. I love it. To which they taped uh, some of the peppercorns to the outside of that the corporate folder for that transaction. It's still in their drawer to this day. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. I, just, I just saw that. I was like, that, that's absolutely hilarious. But, you know, people don't know these things and little cutesy things like that do make uh, yeah, yeah. interesting. So for going forward, we can use that when I say, yeah, this is a peppercorn of value. It, uh, now you know what that means. It's like saying, uh, I'm your huckleberry. <laughs> I'm your huckleberry. Um, Quick, n- not you, not you. To everybody listening, what's the movie? Go ahead. Do, 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 do. We were on vacation where they filmed that. We saw the bar. We saw the uh, everything uh, from the movie, and we were there when they had a thunderstorm. Remember that? Yes. That was, and remember, everybody, we were actually watching the movie, uh, a group event, remember, down yep, in, the, in, I do, I in do. popcorn, we're drinking, having a good yep. time, and, and thunderstorms, everybody said, oh, my God, the, because that scene... Uh, where he dies and is brought into the... Uh, the movie we're talking about is Tombstone. Oh, I wasn't going to say it. Okay. You, you've gone on too long. Now people are going to be like lost and confused. <laughs> what are they talking about? Uh, most is this people an are inside lost. joke? So we were, we were at the, the location where they filmed the movie Tombstone, and uh, we were staying at a hotel, and uh, great thunderstorm. And you might remember in the scene uh, where Bill Pullman is shot and dies. Bill Pullman's dead, by the way. Uh, he starred with uh, whoever her name is in the movie Twister. Um, what was her name? Doesn't make any difference. So the um, it was just a really great thing. I don't know why I got off on that. Oh, I know it was. Uh, uh, who was who who's that guy who said, "I'm your Huckleberry"? Fiddlesticks. It's not Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman's still alive. Oh, Bill Pullman's still alive. Yeah. Who died? Um, I don't know. Okay, well, Bill, I'm sorry if you're listening. I guess you, we'll keep you around. Bottom line, there's a lot of cute, cute phrases. Let's continue on with this thing. So the other thing we, can, we need to bring up, uh, folks, don't discount things like crypto, the well, world so of crypto and COVID all ties into so all this stuff. that's a huge aspect to this and to very quickly talk about this. Um, well, let me finish on Silicon Valley Bank. Give me like 10 seconds here. Yeah. The issue is there's some mismanagement in the company. Uh, outside factors significantly uh, hampered whatever their crazy plan was. And that's why they're at where they're at now. They didn't have enough deposits to cover what they needed. They needed to sell some stuff. And that caused a domino effect that uh, necessitated them uh, to create a a new offering to raise some money, which is what they wanted to do. Uh, They decided, hey, we need to raise some money. Let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, I I don't know, uh, it was I don't know if it was a bond or I think it was a bond offering of some sort. They wanted to raise I think roughly two point two or three billion dollars, something like that, basically to shore up their balance sheet um, and to cover potential losses from selling uh, these uh, securities prematurely. And that basically then everybody panicked. Their debt was downgraded by Moody's, and that happened on last Wednesday, and that is what caused this entire uh, mess. The, the downgrading of their debt and um, everybody realizing that they were this uh, 
they were they were this tight on uh, on capital and everything forced everybody to realize what was going on. That in particular is what caused a run on large deposits at the bank. And roughly within about a 24 hour period, you had something to the tune of $40 billion in withdrawals demanded when they were unable to meet those demands, they were shut down. And that that's the rule, right? If you can't meet, if you can't meet demands for cash, then, then the government will come in and shut you down. Real, that's, real that's quick, the, that's, that's the end of your run. That's it, you're Regardless done. of whether you have the assets to do it, if you can't market those assets and supply the cash in a reasonable amount of time, it's over. So that's ultimately what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. And that goes back to what we talked before in, in banking. You have to mark to market, whether you like it or not, enough to make sure that you have the liquidity Exactly. when but people want their money. The problem is, is how can any bank reasonably have effectively 25% of their, of their assets just sitting around earning nothing to, oh, what if 25% of all of my entire bank's assets want to withdraw in one day? That's a ridiculous ask for most banks, right? Oh, it is, and but you see, but... So that then becomes the question, you know, yeah, they did a bunch of dumb things, but relatively speaking, they were still pretty stable. And the assets are there. That's the other thing. People, well, but people hang on a second. Here's, okay. But hang on a second. Here's the key. The, the people that are banking at Silicon Valley Bank, let's, let's go through the demographics and, and they're going to be a little smarter. They're going to have a lot of technology. It's very small. It's a small, tight-knit community. Oh, yeah. People know each other. Oh, yeah. Okay? So on Wednesday, they announced that they had sold a whole bunch of securities. They needed to yep. at a loss. They booked a $2.25 billion loss. That was the straw that began the camel to break. That is it. Because what happened is they needed those the cash to shore up the balance sheet because people were already beginning to like, to you know, just natural circumstances, but it triggered a panic. Okay, you have to manage your public relations. And that's, they didn't do it. I mean, they somehow or another, they well, didn't they do it. They managed it for a while. They, they because, did. Because they had slowing deposits for, for four straight quarters. And, you know, they managed it until they couldn't anymore. Is but you, you understand what I'm saying. Oh, they, I, 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 you got to the point understand. where everybody was scrambling to get the hell out of there and, well, and, yeah, and that's, you're that's done. A, that's the thing. You're 100% right that it's a tight-knit community. The word travels fast. And, and yeah. And, and I want to go back to what I said about 10% of the crazy Democrats and Republicans influencing 40%, uh, 30%. It's the same thing here. Absolutely. You just need somebody to, you know... And, and you, it could literally be somebody, and I'm not saying it is, it could be somebody like Peter Thiel who just happened to get his money out. Yep. And then he's sitting around going, yeah, we got out of there just nick of time. That place is blowing up. All you need is one that's receptionist. Exactly, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And, and some people are pointing this out that, you know, this is, this is a classic um, situation of, you know, Silicon Valley at its core. You know, people like to think, oh, Silicon Valley, there are all these, you know, left-wing, uh, you know, Democrats and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is, is they're not really. A lot of the biggest heavyweights in Silicon Valley are actually more libertarian in mind. So they're all, you know, they want to, you know, <laughs> I don't, don't need to go on political ideology no. and stuff, but the point is, is they're more libertarian-minded. So they want the government out of their stuff. They want to do things their own way, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, is once again, you have these people who have, uh, have, have brought a lot of risk onto themselves um, immediately started demanding that they get bailed out. 
and uh, some of the people that are the most quote unquote free market were were incessantly demanding that they get bailed out. And what's even funnier is then the threats that started happening that not, not a lot of people are talking about, or if they are, they're not really talking about them as threats. They're just talking about them as you know hyperbole. But in effect, what you had is you had some large venture capital, uh, let's call them uh, investors and influencers, talk about how the FDIC needs to cover this, the government needs to help us, blah, blah, blah. And if it, if this doesn't help, then then they're the ones who seeded the idea that this is going to domino into lots of other small regional banks. And they started to name some of them because these same venture capital firms started to pull funds from those banks too. Yep. So you have an inter- a very, very interesting, uh, you know, I'm not going to use any names, this is purely hypothetical, but it, it seems to line up that you had um, people in Silicon Valley with access to lots and lots of cash and portfolio companies that have even more cash. You know, the amount of money on the sidelines in Silicon Valley due to the drop in, in, in investing in 2022 is uh, the amount of cash on the sidelines in venture capital funds is somewhere to the tune of $600 billion right now. That's not a small amount. That is a tremendous amount of money. And the question is, where is that money? Well, it's all over the place. So what it looks like happened is certain people tried to get their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Some people did. Some people didn't. But when you know the you-know-what has actually hit the fan and they realized that we need, we need this to get bailed out because otherwise this could be months before we get access to our money again, some people started to put the screws to the government. And they started when the, the government at first was like, well, you know, what are, they, they didn't they weren't really sure exactly how much they could get away with as far as letting them letting the rules as they currently stand play. Because as the rules play, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is a very unique bank because of their large deposit, the, the nature of their large deposits. They had only 2.7 percent of all deposits at the bank were covered by FDIC insurance. So that means you know, uh, they're under the $250,000 mark. That was all the FDIC was exposed to. So the FDIC, it's a pretty easy thing. Okay, we go and we guarantee roughly $6 billion of, of uh, deposits. We go in, basically administer the uh, uh, closure and, and uh, winding down of their business operations, uh, make the depositors whole, transfer them to a new institution, um, guarantee the depositors that are guaranteed. Everybody else above that mark gets a uh, effectively a voucher or warrant for the uh, their their portion of, of the remaining funds. They wind it all down, and then everybody else gets a gets a, a check or a deposit once it's totally completed, right? But that could take a year or two years. That could take a long time. So that's you know you have you have what a hundred fifty billion dollars worth of assets that are going to be in limbo for the better until that transaction winds down. That made a lot of people very, very mad. But more importantly, that also caused a domino effect within Silicon Valley and uh, other companies because, you know, you've got uh, what I saw a number with Bloomberg. I don't know if it's true, but Bloomberg said it. Um, 50% of startups in the U.S. banked at Silicon Valley Bank. So you had a lot of companies that could have payroll problems. They could have... Uh, debt servicing problems and other things if if the majority of their cash was with Silicon Valley Bank. But anyways, to put all that aside, um, it looks like you had, you all, uh, along with all of this other stuff that happened, you had some very, very large um, investors who are, 
you know, California startup based investors that run very large venture capital funds and firms. The the um, titans of the industry. It looks like they intentionally put the screws to the Fed and to Treasury. Because I think in the beginning a lot of people were more than happy to let them fall because it is their own pro- is, is a problem of their own making. Instead, what they decided to do was make it very clear that you say this is not a systemic risk, which it isn't. So they decided to socialize their risk by creating fear and start yanking on the levers they had access to. And that sounds like a conspiracy, but it's pretty clear that that actually happened to some degree. Um, so, you know, there's multiple angles to this that we need to keep in mind. It's not as plain and simple as everybody seems to point it out. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's talk about the venture capital firms and the role of VC companies. Because this is, an, this is something that I saw as this was happening and honestly I'm appalled by. And it really shows you the lack of value that a lot of these firms are providing. So one of the things I want to give a context for is we throw away around the words million and billion, and in this case, $600 billion of cash sitting on the sidelines. Back, uh, oh gosh, in the 1970s, I'm trying to think about when it was. It probably was 74, 75, 76, maybe something, somewhere in that time frame. I had an opportunity. I was in Washington, D.C., and there was a former uh, NFL quarterback by the name of Jack Kemp. And I believe it was then called the New England Patriots. I don't remember. Anyhow, he was a quarterback, and he wound up running for the United States uh, Congress. And he represented, uh, I don't know if it was Rochester or Buffalo, New York. And if you've ever heard of the Kemp-Roth, now the Roth IRA, you understand those laws. That was Jack Kemp. Jack had a a real deep, grovelly voice. He'd sound a little bit like Broderick Crawford on a, on, a, on, on a good day. And he wore this diving watch, a giant diving watch, before anybody wore such a thing. We're all wearing Rolexes and, and those kinds of things. And uh, Jack had this uh, giant uh, diving watch. He gave a speech one day, and he said, you know, we sit back and we lean over to each other and we'll say things with, is that a million or a billion. Today we're doing trillions. So he said, was that a million or a billion? Then he said, let me give you what that means. He said, uh, a million seconds, a million seconds. And he rounded up is a 12 days. Uh, for those of you who are, uh, are particular, uh, it's 11.5. So we're going to make it 12 days. So a million seconds is uh, 11 days. So if somebody said, I'll pay you a dollar a second, you're a millionaire in, uh, in 12 days. Or it was at a billion. And he said the difference between the two is 11 versus 31. Actually, 32. It's 31.7. So we're going to round it up to 32. He says, so the difference is not 12, but 32. And everybody is thinking, oh, 32 days. And he pauses for effect. And I used to do this in my seminars uh, when I did a lot of seminars. I did a Living Trust Reality Workshop for years and years and years, along with a whole bunch of other forecasting and economic and uh, investing and risk management seminars I've done. And I used to say 32 and did the same thing he did. It's a long pause. and Somebody inevitably goes, days, wow, no years. So the difference between a million seconds is 12 days versus 32 years. Now, Paul just mentioned a second ago, $600 billion. Uh, Yeah, that's 19,020 years. 
to give you an idea of the enormity of the kind of money we're talking about. Yeah. You got to get your head wrapped around oh, that. It's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot. It's a brain screw, that's for sure. But that tells you that there's a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to be deployed. And given the high valuations of these companies and the current market environment, it's not there's there's just not the value to be had or there's not the opportunities to be had. And um, so there is a lot of cash sitting on the sideline, especially with these venture firms. If somebody's threatening to lock that up for a year or more or shred the valuation of your existing companies because they're forced to get, um, let's say, uh, uh, loans or fundraise capital that is going to for further dilute your, your existing shareholders, that is going to make some people very mad. Uh, you know, this, this is one of those... Um, this is a black swan event for Silicon Valley. And it's, like I said, it's entirely their own doing um, because this stuff has been public, public and open and people that know what they're doing did not do their due diligence. No, and, and there were some red flags on this. Uh, uh, Gregory Becker, B-E-C-K-E-R, uh, now former CEO of the bank, sold uh, 11% of his shares in the bank uh, 12 days uh, prior. Uh, Daniel Beck, chief financial officer, sold 32% of his holdings, and the chief marketing officer, Michelle Draper, sold 28% of their holdings. The, these folks are going to have some tough times ahead. I wonder if, she, I wonder if she's, a, if she's a related to yep. the I, Draper Venture Capital. I will have to figure that out. Maybe, uh, But it's they also paid name, out... So probably, yes. Yeah, and they paid out uh, annual bonuses to as many employees that they could, just a few hours before being seized. So there's going to be some interesting, well... Yeah, people are going to get in trouble for that. That is, all of those things there, that is, that's, there's criminal liability for all of that because they know exactly what they're doing. They can't claim that they were ignorant to any of this. Um, so, so for venture capital firms, so, you know, the thing that was baffling to me is how many companies had so much cash, especially long-term cash, sitting at one bank. Uh, you know, you'll see some headlines of different companies like Roku had a quarter of their cash at Silicon Valley Bank. It's like, okay, that's a lot, but, you know, what is it, $500 million? It's a quarter of their cash. Okay, I can understand, you know, divvying it up between a handful of banks. Maybe it wasn't as well invested as, you know, maybe it was curring good favor. Who knows? Um, maybe it was a deposit that, that helped deal with, uh, you know, uh, collateral for a, a, a a nicely uh, uh, a nice interest rate loan. Who knows, right? There's there's all kinds of reasons for why these funds could be there. Maybe they were about to acquire a company, and this is this is at the institution they would do the transaction at. There's lots of th there's lots of reasons for these different things, but it wasn't all. Um, but you did have some other companies. You had some crypto companies that had billions there. Uh, you had other companies in general, but you had a lot of startups that had the majority, if not all, of their capital there. And this is the thing that people were really freaking out on because if these deposits were not guaranteed, the question is, how does all this play out? You know, there are certain elements to, uh, there are certain obligations that pierce the corporate veil that make corporate officers liable for, for uh, uh, being legally liable. Uh, one of those in, I believe, California, if the thing that I read was correct, is... Um, certain aspects to payroll and there are other things like that. Uh, so people don't want to be held liable for not doing the prudent thing, which in, you know, some of these companies cases, if we had 
if we don't have access to any of our money, then we have to lay people off, right? It's just really simple stuff. Yeah, um, yeah it's pretty simple. It's ones and zeros. So, yeah, the, the, there's that was the potential domino. Um, but the very simple reality of it is, why did so many companies have so much of their company's assets, especially if you're a startup, when that's the fuel that you run on, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're not profitable. Yep. Why did they take such a huge risk by having it all at one bank? That to me seems wild. And, uh, you know, it, there's a role. The thing I've heard from pretty much everybody is one of the values that the quote unquote vulture capitalists, the, the VCs who, who lend this money to small companies for huge uh, percentages of, of the uh of stock in the company is they provide education and assistance and expertise and uh, you know all these uh, all these niceties to people who don't have any experience running companies, right? Exactly. And you know that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you know, if, if you have a vested interest in a company, of course you're gonna you're you're you have your on staff or whatever experts who are going to be able to help somebody who maybe they're 23, they've never run a company, they've never even really had a real job, but now they're in charge of 20, you know, uh, 20 employees and all the intricacies that, that come with that, right? Right. So, you know, a company that's 10 or 20 employees can't really justify having a CFO, usually. That's the reason why I've met more than a few people who are fractional CFOs. Exactly. And they have a real hard time marketing themselves, Um <laughs> We know of a company right now, we can't say who it is. They could use a fractional CFO. Exactly. So, hey, if you guys, and you know who I'm talking about, uh, let's just say you're in the media industry, quit being stupid. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the, the reality is these venture capital firms, I assumed, apparently wrongly, that this was part of the role that they played was having people that work at the venture capital firms who are accountants and and, uh, you know, let's say well-versed and educated in finance and, and, and uh, CFO-related uh, tasks, regulatory tasks, uh, financial-related tr- tasks, but also treasury-related tasks. Because, you know, most companies can't justify employing people for managing corporate treasury until they have a significant amount of assets or employees. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, most of these people should be educated on basic tools for being able to secure their funds. And, you know, in the in the in this world, you have three major tools that are of use for people who have a significant amount of cash and that's very valuable to them. Um, right for a lot of firms, they just use a money market account. They 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 use money market funds, okay? That's pretty simple. Those are available. I saw several people who run venture capital firms and they say this is how we manage our our, our capital is we just have a handful of money market funds that they put their cash into. That way it's going to earn some yield, but it's diversified by a fund manager across a vast array of banks. And that's how they do it. It's like, okay, that's pretty simple. So and, that, and that's what we do. We have millions uh, that we well, have no. access to. Well, no, I'm saying money market funds. No, no, I'm sorry, but I'm talking about FDIC. So yeah. then, then the next I, one you have is you have firms that have insured cash sweep accounts. Correct. And this is what is common in the brokerage industry. Um, Typically, this doesn't really scale to the numbers that you need if you raise a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you have a few million dollars, it's usually pretty easy. This is something that 
that we leverage for our clients using interactive brokers and other firms that we've used in the past or continue to use um, where they will, you deposit your cash and depending on uh, how they have it set up or your personal preference, uh, they will split that among other banks behind the scenes. So for you, it's like I have, you know, $2.3 million in cash and behind the scenes, it's actually splitting it between, uh, you know, a handful of banks to keep it under that FDIC limit to pre- keep your keep your money safe. Uh, it's pretty pretty simple stuff. Um, it's basically just a an administrative layer, and they just manage the need to access cash. Um, but then there's also another service out there that most people don't know anything about. They're called CDARS, C-D-A-R-S. It's certificate of deposit. Uh, uh, it's, it's certificates of deposit. Uh, account registry service and lots of banks work with this service i assume it's i I don't know the exact details on who runs it but basically you can look it up uh, just google cdars and there's tons of banks out there that use this system Um, in our local area there's like five and you know we 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 are not in you know tampa or any place like that so there you know you go to major cities there's going to be even more yep Um, they're usually smaller more regional banks and basically the way this works is they, um, because they're part of this, this network, you say, I have $50 million for my startup that I want to uh, properly protect. Uh, you go into your, your bank that you have a relationship with that has the service, and they then um, distribute those funds out to their partner banks for you so you don't have to open up dozens or potentially hundreds of bank accounts. And then they socialize that risk all the way out to all these other banks um, under one administrative system, if that makes sense, right? Yep. So, you know, $50 million, I mean, that would be 200 banks. (laughs) Nobody wants to manage 200 bank accounts. So that's what the system is for. So you have your relationship with your one bank. This is your capital reserve fund, and that's what you keep it in. And then when you want to make deposits and withdrawals, sure, maybe it takes an extra business day or two to orchestrate that. But at least it's safe. Right? So the 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 point so though is there available. are tools there, and why weren't those used? Well, that's my question: is why do the venture firms not educate them? Do they not know about them? Are they not telling people about them? Or more importantly, I think this is probably the dirty secret: where they intentionally telling people, "Well, we work with Silicon Valley Bank because that's who their relationship is. There are deals in place. People are being paid." Absolutely, and everybody is. Everybody's got a piece of the action. It's it's no it's no different than this multi level marketing crap. Where yeah, well, we'll refer business to you, and we get a cut of the action. And if if the if we have a federal agent listening to this, who has a set of kahunas, who has a position of authority, this is the stuff you need to investigate. Oh, because absolutely. I don't give a crap. Listen, if if somebody says to me, "Oh, listen, uh, we need a bunch of printing done." Okay, we can handle that. We have a we have a media division, and we can get that done. We have relationships. I'm going to get paid. Do you expect me to work for free? No. You disclose it. Real simple. You disclose it. Now, on the other hand, if I'm lying to you and saying, "Oh no, no," but that's just part of this other thing, yada yada yada, that's wrong. So, yo, uh, Fred, Fed, somebody needs to do something, but it's not going to happen. Everybody's on the payola. So along that line that, that kind of opened my eye, was, you know, these things are always a possibility, but, you know, where's the evidence, right? So here's something that I saw uh, come across Twitter, and it 
opened my eye to this is there's a more incestuous relationship going on here between the VC firms than I realized. And here, here, here it is. You've got a guy on Twitter and he said, this is the perfect example. I believe this is from Friday. Uh, this is a perfect example of VC's ability to predict the future. He said from a VC three months ago, and it's a screenshot of a text. Okay. Okay. And, the te- and it's just screen. It's, he has the date in it, but he didn't, you know, there's no way who it is or whatever, but it's obviously somebody that this guy knows. And I'm sure he posted this just as a joke to like, you know, haha, you know, VCs are just as, uh, as uh, dumb as the rest of us type thing, right? They're not these infallible creatures that everybody thinks they are. But this is a classic case of somebody sharing a piece of information, unintentionally exposing what's going on. He said, this says, heads up, you are using Mercury Bank for your cash, question mark. Mercury Bank is one of these tech banks that is basically software on top of Another bank, um, in this case, they we'll use, need to explain that too. They use partner banks, um, and their primary partner is Evolve Bank. I don't know hardly anything about them, but anyway, he says, um, "Heads up, you are using Mercury for your um, bank for your cash?" Question uh, mark. We recommend moving to SVB because of exposure to the mess. Can share more today. So the guy's joking about how. These guys are recommending people move money from one bank to Silicon Valley Bank. So the date on this, December 2nd. <laughs> so you have, I have at least one piece of evidence that shows venture, venture partners are reaching out to their fund companies, um, encouraging them to move their treasury from Mercury to Silicon Valley Bank. Well, the reason, the rationale behind this was there was unfounded rumors in Silicon Valley during the FTX, um, BlockFi, and other uh, crypto meltdown nightmare that happened the end of last year. There were totally unfounded rumors that the uh, Mercury's partner bank, Evolve, was in bed with, uh, involved in doing business with FTX. Oh, really? Yes. The rumor wasn't reported on anybody serious because there's no way to prove it. It wasn't real. But it was a rumor that went around Silicon Valley. I remember seeing it in a few in a few places myself. So you're saying you're telling me that the same moment Silicon Valley Bank is beginning to teeter, they're having to sell down securities for massive losses for the first time, uh, right before that that uh, quarterly report they had to file. You have uh, people who have partner relationships with the firm, telling their fund companies that they that were encouraging them to move their treasury to Silicon Valley bank that is starving for deposits based on unfounded fear and rumors. That's very, very curious to me. If I was a federal investigator, I would, I would chase that lead because it sounds to me like you have a lot of people on the inside who knew that this was starting to tumble and they needed to call us assets. Yep. Um, they were unable, unsuccessful. And, in and, and Jeffrey so. Epstein's uh, a whole network is going to be brought down too. Yeah, that exactly. But so <laughs> all I'm saying is, you know, because of social media, everybody thinks their opinion is, uh, is very important and they share things and they inadvertently kind of share little clues that normally it would take a lot of shoe leather to kind of figure out. And to me, you know, this may be totally coincidental, probably is, who knows, but at least it kind of shows you the insider kind of nature of this whole thing because, you know, Silicon Valley is an insider world. Um, now, I'm not claiming that anybody Do we have any branches? Bad. Do we have any branches of Silicon Valley in Florida? I don't think so. See, if they had a branch here, then uh, 
Ron DeSantis could uh, claim jurisdiction to begin an investigation against his big buddy uh, Newsom over there in oh, California. Boy. But so you know, I'm not I'm not claiming that anything uh, overtly illegal was done or anything like that. But it is very curious that, that this is the kind of relationship that was going on. So it, it does show you the the panic and fear of this very. Um, uh, closed system this closed ecosystem of financing and and knowledge and and capital and all this stuff it you know we, we've talked about it for years how you know special and unique it is this environment that they have out there but obviously they're just as prone to the same risks as everybody else and you know uh, money talks in a lot of cases and they didn't do what was in the best interest of their portfolio companies, some of these guys. Well, it's sequencing. And, you know, in in the world of finance, uh, some people use a thing called the envelope system. Uh, you have that idiot Dave Ramsey who thinks he invented it. But, uh, wow. uh, yo, Dave, my mom and dad were born in 1915, way before you. And uh, I'm older than you, I think. And... Uh, you know, they talked about the envelope system. The envelope system goes back to the days of the Middle Ages when people had uh, coins and they had leather bags that had a little div division in between so it didn't rattle. And uh, today we have a thing called the bucket system. We have a guy who thinks he invented the bucket system, but he uh, got a, a trademark on it. But yeah, just bucketing money, uh, structuring it for those who uh, don't understand how uh, basically an annuity through an, a commercial uh, insurance company, private annuities, charitable remainder, uh, annuity trusts, social security, defined benefit pension plans, they're all based upon actuarial calculations that go back to a Roman uh, before the birth of Christ known as Japanius. So if you don't know that, why don't you just shut your Japanius mouth and, <laughs> and uh, kiss my free white behind. But, you know, the thing that really irks my, and I, this is kind of ties into what you were saying, like, what did people know? I can't pronounce this guy's name, but it's spelled V-I-V-E-K. So Vidic, uh, Vivek Ramswani. Vivek. Vivek Ramswani. He was a... He's running for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. And he came out and firmly declared that he is against a Silicon Valley bailout. He's 37 years old. He's an entrepreneur, which reminds me of the word manure. So, so you're saying he's like, he, he, he very much reminds me of the, um, he's the Republican version of, uh, of Yang. What's yes. What's guy's name? I don't know. Something Yang. The uh, Yang Yang. UBI, let's give everybody free money guy. Yeah, and he uh, said that, well, of course, he's founded a multi supposedly multiple biotech startups worth billions of dollars. He said, quote, and you know what? We don't learn the lessons we should have learned. Then you keep making the same mistakes over again. Now, here's what he said. We're skiing on snow, artificial snow. You turn the machine off and... Guess what? It's it's like banks fail. So you you can't ski. There's no money, and and they just there's no more money being pumped into the system. The guy is 100% clueless, but he's a billionaire like somebody else who ran for president. The, the speech pattern I'm detecting there is very Trump-like. Oh, very I very I much. Think, I don't think this guy is as inept as he's portraying. He's just playing politics. But you understand what's going on there. He's he's just pumping up the the bull. Yeah, absolutely. 
the story that yeah oh this and he, he's, oh he's call it crony capitalism and well, Paulson are, and yeah yeah so. people are a lot of people apparently this guy included uh, whoever he is uh, are are blathering on about bailouts 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 this isn't a bailout shareholders got wiped out bondholders are of course last and what what is there to be bailed out the executives are all fired there is no bailout going on here. All they did, all that is going on now, is a preservation of capital. Um, one last item on the VCs that I, I forgot to mention is that it's it's important to remember that the VCs sat back and demanded a bailout after themselves being the ones that created the bank run. Bingo. That's the thing that people are mad about, and that's the thing that if I were the government, I would investigate and I would slap people, fine people, whatever, whatever you have to do, to prevent this type of thing from happening again in the future uh, to scare people because the reality is, is no, not everybody who is a depositor at this bank should lose money. It, like this, you know, extreme laissez faire perspective that some of the um, people in the uh, more Republican party leaning uh, perspective, more conservative leaning, more libertarian leaning uh, think that we should have is a joke because, you know, if you let Silicon Valley bank collapse, the very simple reality is, the next month's jobs report will show probably between 500,000 and a million people will be laid off. It will create this domino effect that will spiral the U.S. economy completely out of control. And there will, there will be dozens and dozens of additional bank runs on smaller regional banks that are not as well capitalized that cannot handle this sort of thing. It would go insane. So what the government is doing, I guess, is what we'll get into next, to me is the very prudent measure. Um, because what... In, in from a pure analysis of, of the balance sheet of these banks, but in particular Silicon Valley Bank, they're good. The money's there. It's just a matter of when you can access it. And that's, that's where they messed up. It's the timing, not value. So they didn't invest in dumb stuff. This isn't 2008 where the mortgage-backed securities are falling apart. They're not worth what they were. It's the fact that there's, there's, a, there's a liquidity crisis um, in the moment right now. And that's the issue. So this is something that the government can actually do, and they can do it very cheaply. And this is what they've decided to do. They decided to back the deposit, the depositors of the bank 100% because there are assets there to back it up. Any losses that they do take, if there are any losses, I think with Silicon Valley Bank, it'll be a couple billion dollars because they did start to sell stuff. Um, but in general, I mean, it's like 99, 98, 99%. It's mostly there. Uh, they will back those deposits 100%. So FDIC insurance, there are no limits. The, uh, the hole in the balance sheet will be covered by the FDIC. And then, so those losses will be socialized among the banks that pay into the FDIC system, just like any other regular insurance would happen, right? Right. Um, the bank has been closed. It was closed Friday. All of the executives were fired on Friday. The rest of the employees that make the bank operational are, uh, by according to FDIC rules, will be employed for 45 days. And then the decision with the new partner, the partnering bank, that these assets will be provided to and these accounts will be provided to, uh, will have the next you know month and a half to figure out who needs to stay and who's going. And so a, the, a large portion of the uh, 8,500 employees, I assume, will likely be fired. No different than off. any kind of a takeover, whether it's a, a merger of equals or a hostile takeover. It's what happens. 
the FDIC is spinning out or selling off other uh, divisions as are necessary. A good example is what we mentioned before about the uh, uh, English or British uh, uh, division um, sold to HSBC for a peppercorn. Um, well, actually one pound. Um, they, yeah, so, I mean, in general, it's pretty simple. Uh, because there are assets there, um, that's what's happening. But it is not a bailout because the shareholders lost everything and the executives are not being helped out. My, my hope is that they're criminally investigated for their behavior in the, in the lead up to the collapse. And bondholders are, you know, kind of out in the cold. Um, they're going to be sitting behind the depositors, uh, deposit holders, as far as a claim on things. But the reality is, is they're, the likelihood is there's not going to be much, much there for them to claim. So they're going to take a loss on that too. Um, so, you know, I think it's a fairly prudent thing because what it does is it backs up the people who had money, who had the real assets in the bank. Um, take everything we said, you know, about the VCs and the incestuous relationships and uh, all of the potential uh, for uh, collusion and different things aside. If you're a random company or a lot of people in Silicon Valley employees had bank accounts there and bank there personally or have mortgages with with the company should those people be wiped out just because the bank made bad decisions i, I don't think so let's let's talk um, about the mortgages as well, well there but so, continue i also want to talk about vanderbilt when you come back ahead sure um and, and this this falls on to these other banks uh signature bank in new york as well as uh silvergate bank which is uh, another california bank uh, so i'll mention these very very quickly silvergate bank in california is a very small regional uh, bank operated very much like a credit union until a couple of years ago when the founder uh, was convinced effectively by his children that crypto is uh, the best thing in the world and we can be the crypto bank uh, of the country. So they decided to stand up a bunch of infrastructure and they became the crypto bank. Uh, this came about around the time, uh, basically five uh, or so years ago, when every bank in the country was like, no way. Jose, we are not working with you people. You are, almost all of you are incapable of providing any documentation as to where this money came from. A lot of this money is money laundering, drug sales, other illicit activities that we don't want anything to do with. And we've been talking about that for years and yes. years and years to the point where, you know, I was at a uh, event uh, not uh, maybe six, seven, eight months ago, well, probably a year ago, and this woman came in, oh, crypto, crypto, crypto. And I People said to me, well, what do you think, Paul? You're an investment advisor. I said, I wouldn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole, and that's too short. And she lost her mind, and I said, <laughs> I, I told people, it, it's, a, it's a money laundering thing. It's a great money laundering thing. If that's what you want to get into, it, knock yourself up. We don't want anything to do with it. Oh, but some of the big brokerage firms out there are now doing it, and they started talking about, I think, uh, who was it, Morgan Stanley, even Schwab. Tons, they, tons of banks. They all got into it. Yeah. Oh, and you're smarter than them? Yes, I am smarter than them. And I've been doing this business for, well, for a long, long time. Look at the fees all those firms charged. Oh, God, and That's yes. the only reason they got into it. Is because and I know that sounds cocky, but I am. And you are too. But that's the only reason these big guys got into it is because they had customers that were demanding it. Absolutely. And they could make some money on it. But they, were they personally invested in it? Most of them, absolutely not. Um, so they, just, they basically stood up an infrastructure, made themselves a very serious player uh, for... Uh, for banking services for crypto companies doing 
exchanges and other related activities. And at one point they had a lot of money. Uh, they had a lot of money in deposits, but because of crypto the valuation and all, all the stuff that has happened, the collapses of these different companies that uh, are synonymous with uh, Ponzi schemes and other criminal enterprises that are totally unregulated. Um, they have their deposits have dwindled uh, down to a few billion dollars. And they announced uh, sometime last week that they were basically winding up and, uh, I don't think they were going into receivership, but they were basically being shut down and they were liquidating everything and it was being done. Um, so that's that. Uh, and another, you, you, another you, great California banking success uh, associated with the the great uh, libertarian-minded uh, cryptocurrency people. Well, you can't really, you can't, uh, not you, but I mean, for those of you, you can't correlate the two. You have one that, whether they went belly up or not, I mean, they made a big bet on a big idea, crypto, but then they wound it down. Yes. Yeah, th- yeah, it's it's different than this situation. Yeah, as far as I know, it, it hasn't blown up. I, I don't know all the details, and I haven't really dug into it. But in general, it's a few billion dollars. It's not a tremendous amount of money. Um, but it's interesting because they were a massive player at one point in time just recently and within the past two years, and now they're effectively nothing. Um, the And then you have this other one um, that was Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and what's the other one? Um, Signature. Yeah, Signature. Signature Bank in New York is another fairly large bank. Uh, It's, I believe they had about $90 billion in deposits. Um, They also did a lot of business with crypto firms. Uh, As far as everything that I saw, uh, granted this happened on Sunday, and I haven't had a ton of time to really dig into what's going on there. Uh, They are one of these banks that uh, the... uh, let's call it the fear mongers on social media. We're showing pictures of people trying to get at, uh, that were lining up outside the lines. Yeah. Which is in New York uh, showing that, Oh, is this, is this the twenties all over? You know, I just, uh, some of these people you just want to physically hurt because they are so dumb and they are doing exactly the thing that they're pretending they're not doing. Well, journalists creating fear. Yeah. Journalists are generally stupid, low IQ people. Anyways, here's, here's the thing that didn't start with journalists. Yeah, most of the st- journalists are not smart enough to do some of the stuff that I've seen. <laughs> this stuff is being propagated out there by these intentional disinformation actors. And th- I saw a lot of this coming out of networks that are associated with Russian propaganda. And you can disagree with me on that. I don't care. I know what I'm doing. I've been following this stuff for the better part of four years. These these networks. And I attest to that. My son is an absolute unequivocal expert in this area. And what he just said, these intentional Disins, disinformation networks linked back to the Russians and, and Chinese and the, you're right and the Chinese I got to make it real clear and well Israel we got a whole bunch of them that are out there the they're big, all interrelated and I got to tell you guys you would be surprised we're, we're not going to go the, the information that we know is available for clients only but if you knew some of these people you see every day on the on the, on the uh, screens you'd you would be you'd poop but the, the vast majority of the disinformation money, the sourcing of it is it's Russians yep. and it's Chinese. Yep. And you, they use a lot of different avenues and vectors. Like you mentioned, there's, there's Israel and there's a handful of other countries where a lot of the stuff comes out of uh, India, Brazil. Those are huge nexus of, of where, the, where, the, where the, the, the generation of this content is. Yep. Um, but the sourcing of the capital and the people who are running it are out of Russia and China. And China outweighs Russia 10 to 1. And you know who's running the whole show? Steven Seagal. 
Yeah, that's that's it. But anyway, it, so that's the thing that's that's annoying is because you have a very loud minority of of obnoxious people, primarily around. Um, uh, you know, it used to be these kind of weirdo like code pink greenies who were really obnoxious and annoying and would create problems. But those people, they're still around, but they just don't really measure to the level of, of success that people like the like the hardcore magas and the Q people have have been co-opted. Um, you know, like I, I anybody that shares a zero hedge article exposes their idiocy. Zero hedge is funny. I saw um, a fantastic write up a couple weeks ago. The guy who runs Zero Hedge is the son of a dude who worked for uh, Russian intelligence, particularly in their propaganda division back in the Soviet times. No. Like, this stuff is really not hard to track. Oh, but he's a real, you know, he's reporting on all, you know, that's, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so, so Signature Bank, same thing is happening with them. They're being wound down um, according to the same, they're not being wound down they're being they, they were put out of business by the New York banking regulator and the same thing with them is the uh, same application is being is being done with them as was Silicon Valley Bank um, they created like a signatures signature something they basically are standing them back up with new management uh, but the same thing happened management's fired bank is completely shut down and we have um, uh, a, a full a full guarantee from the FDIC for deposit uh, holders, and uh, my understanding, based on a very brief glance of, of some documents with uh, their their uh, their assets and their their ratios and everything, that they are generally speaking mostly uh, well, not mostly they're they're very solid as well as far as their assets. They just have a very similar situation where their maturities don't match their demands for for withdrawals. So. Um, so in general, I, I think it's it's probably the least destructive uh, way to handle this situation and nip it in the bud very quickly. Um, this reduces the fear that people will have for your smaller banks that aren't you know basically your top five or top ten banks. Uh, people won't be fearful that you know oh, I have more than two hundred fifty thousand. I need to immediately start moving money around and do all this stuff, which creates problems, right? You know if you have a regional bank and they have a lot of like local business owners or businesses that run their operating accounts out of there. And now people are worried that small banks are going to go belly up. Um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money to start being moved around until you create a real financial crisis. And, well, it's, and it's not because anything, anybody did anything wrong either. That's yeah. the other thing. You can have people making dumb decisions like Silicon Valley bank that then cascade into people who like, I've been doing the same thing I've been doing for 60 years. And why is this happening to me? That's the problem that they're trying to prevent. And so basically what we're, what we're seeing is the new FDIC rule seems to look, it's not written down, this is arbitrary and, and exceptional in nature, but it is, it is kind of a, an interesting kind of caveat to the rule now is that if your bank is sound and has a good book of business, that the FDIC will back it up 100% because they have the time horizon and the... the the, uh, the the risk horizon to be able to provide the liquidity necessary to make everybody whole. That seems to be the exception. And see, here's the thing. Because of the way banking regulation has gone in the past 15 years, almost every bank has a good balance sheet. We're not operating like a Chinese bank where it's like, you know, they lie and say there's a thousand to one assets when there's, when, you know, there's not. It's, it's not some crazy thing that is out of a book that happened in 
you know, prior centuries, like what happened in the 1920s, just the crazy banking practices, the extremely volatile, insane things that were allowed to happen back then. I mean, banks that operate like that should go out of business because they're, how do you even backstop it? That's just, that, that is moral hazard. Um, but banks always get in trouble when they start gambling in the stock market. I'm not talking about investing. I'm talking about gambling. Absolutely. And that's what you had going on Back with then. these banks. Yeah. These banks are no different than what was going on in the 20s. They're gambling. They're using gambling money in essence. Well, but they're not though because no, 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 no. I understand what I'm saying though is okay. Let's do this. Let me let me let me change that. When you start when you have too many gamblers as customers. Yes, exactly. That's my point. Exactly. I'm just I'm extrapolating it to a big level. Yes, the the actual investments, what the bank was doing is not necessarily, it made some bad moves. There's no doubt about it. And there's, there's shenanigans going on there. No doubt about it. But be careful who you associate with. Yes, exactly. Um, but so the point in general is just that the assets for these banks are for the large part there. There's really not a lot that the FDIC or the government is going to do other than they're just providing immediate liquidity for these assets that are not marketable right now, right? They have to mature. It is what it is. Um, but the thing is, the bank is paying for it. The bank is paying for it in that they are, their, their companies are now worth zero. They've been written down to zero. Um, and all the executives are fired. So this is not a bailout as much as it's just, it's just securing the capital that's there. And they're insuring a little bit that if there are any losses. Um, but the downstream effect, effects of all of this, I think, are going to be very interesting. Oh, yeah. Because uh, one thing that is, is the U.S., uh, within the past couple of years, what is it, two years or whatever, you've had the Basel III Accords that uh, made the capital requirements and uh, risk requirements for uh, banking, international banking institutions. It, it made them more strict. It codified a lot of things that people were doing post-2008. Um and banks that were under $250 billion in assets or did not have substantial international uh, banking ties were, were accepted out of these rules by the, uh, by the Trump administration. Okay, I, I don't want to talk about that. So you have this entire sector of banking that in the U.S. gets a pass on the rules and regulations they have to follow compared to the big guys which in some cases is understandable because small banks can't do some of the things that the big guys do, at least not profitably. But Silicon Valley Bank, okay, you're, what, $200 billion or $218 billion or whatever it was versus $250, you're telling me that's a substantial difference? It's not. So there's, there's the downstream effects of much more strict banking regulation on to prevent things like this is going to be substantial. Um, there's going to be some shifts in how things are done and how business is done to make sure that uh, proper liquidity is available. Well, but, for but that goes back to a question is d define large. And that's the problem. Oh, of course. Okay. So what, define too big to fail. And in this case, when did Silicon Valley go from a, a, a local to a regional to a national influential bank? Well, they were the 14th largest bank in the country. So not recently. Okay, so again, here I'm, I'm going to tie a bunch of things together. I'm going to tie the Wizard of Oz, the Deep Dark State. I'm going to tie Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Donald Trump, and Ron Samwami, whatever his name is, who's running for president as a Republican. Uh, I'm going to tie Vivek. all these guys together. Huh? His, name, his first name is Vivek, I would just say that. Vivek. Okay, so here's how we tie these guys together. 
I have, I fully admit that for many years I was a vocal, I voc- vocalized a lot of disgust over the dark state, the faceless men and women in Washington and all about the country who, um, you know, they carry out things without any really oversight and supervision. Okay, I still do, but here's the thing. Thank God that we have the men and women that we have at the FDIC. Uh, thank God we have some people in the uh, Internal Revenue Service who will push back against moronic ideas, although over there I think there's some real problems. Uh, but with the FDIC, thank God. And this is a lot like the, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is walking down the yellow brick road, and they come to the wizard, and the wizard all, is all so powerful. But then Toto, the little dog, and then Dorothy goes behind the curtain, and it's just a little pipsqueak. The wizard is just a little guy. Everything yep. is, it's all fake. And uh, if the truth be known, the yellow brick road was painted with uh, gold paint. It wasn't gold. So, you know, a lot of times, again, I'm saying to each and every one of you individually, stop thinking that people with PhDs uh, actually know what the hell they're doing. Uh, you had a guy, for example, uh, by the name of, let me see if I can pull it up real quickly, Morgan Ricks. R-I-C-K-S. He's a professor, PhD, piled higher and deeper. Uh, He's a professor of banking and finance at Vanderbilt University. So you would think, well, he's probably pretty smart, right? At least you'd assume he has a a good head on him. He he would know the history and and where the current laws and regulations are. Yeah. And he says um, things about the FDIC that issuing receivership certificates, uh, excess $250,000 might not be paid uh, as it sells assets. Uh, future dividend payments to uninsured depositors might be paid. Uh, it gives you a sense the FDIC doesn't uh, place a super high probability on finding a buyer. All of this is crap. Everything he said is yeah, that's con- not, true, yeah, at not true at all. So he goes on to say, well, if there's no buyer, what happens? Uh, Rick says, customers with uninsured funds will likely eventually see their money, but there's no guarantee that they'll get it all back. And he talks about the liquidation process and the $200 billion, blah, 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 to fetch a whole lot less. You have a person who is a professor who basically stoked the fears out of ignorance because he doesn't understand, obviously, the enormity and the power of the rational people at the FDIC to unwind this, to get it squared around, and to make people whole. So, yeah, the FDIC, for people that don't understand, you know, they this is what they do. This is all they do. Yep. And the last time they did this was over two years ago. It was in 2020, and it was with a small regional bank. And if you look at the number of companies that have gone into receivership, it's it's just a handful. It doesn't happen that often. So they're doing something right. They 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 they're very prepared for how to handle this because. The systemic risk of mishandling these types of situations is extremely large. And what I mean by that is, is you know, you don't get your money for a week or two. The risks and problems and the domino effect of people not being able to pay or receive money and do things, and then the cascade of fear and calamity that happens with other people, it, it creates. You know, it's a. It ends up you end up creating a prisoner's dilemma if you don't handle it properly where everybody's there's a run. But then the other thing that the FDIC does that people that nobody talks about because nobody cares about these sorts of things until they're a crisis is the FDIC monitors reports that every FDIC member bank has to submit to them. I believe they're all digital now 
on their assets. So they're able to figure out and monitor who's kind of teetering. And because of that, they're able to then create behind the scenes plans and prepare uh, without the knowledge of of the of the uh, let's call it the the bank of that's uh, has some impending doom potentially. Um, they're able to prepare behind the scenes. Hey, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan, this bank over here is teetering. Uh, if they do go under, is do you guys have the uh, the risk to stomach this type of situation? Would you potentially want to buy them before things go completely belly up? This, you know, everybody can kind of know roughly what their balance, you know, what what their balance sheets look like because it's all public. And these companies can kind of prepare behind the scenes. Hey, maybe that would be a good strategic acquisition, and their management are just idiots, stuff like that. So they're always behind the scenes trying to solve the problem or create the environment to solve the problem, even if it isn't going to happen. And thank God for these people, because what I was going to continue with is you have people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are screaming at the top of their lungs that this is the result of Donald Trump. Trump is responsible for this because he relaxed the banking regulations under his administration. But as you just said, you cannot apply a the regulations to a hundred billion dollar bank to a hundred million, a hundred million, a Absolutely difference not. between a million and no. a billion. And, and let me continue. The thing that really irks me is that you allow these absolute asshats in Washington as senators and members of Congress. Here in Marion County, we elected a, an asshat to uh, the, the state legislature, and these people don't belong there. They're stupid. Because you know what happened? The sixty percent of the voters that have who are rational, they sat down. You had the ten percent crazies, the thirty percent they're influenced by crazy. They put these people in office, and and it's just it's sad. It's really what it comes down because they vote memes, and the well, rational people, voters there's only there's there's a couple thousand of them. Well, Let me people con- also forget. You know, there's some really basic phrases that I've heard my entire life, um, but one of them is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yep. And that is very true in politics. A very small, very loud, outsized as far outsized as far as the volume of their of their voices, a minority always get the attention compared to the people who are sitting in the middle, who don't really have an opinion on the matter or care. But if you've got a, you know, in in the in the case of the federal government, if you have a couple million loons screeching about something that doesn't really matter, guess what? It's going to get solved. Well, and then the other thing is you have the libertarians, a few of these really hardcore libertarians. You know, I I can't believe I... You actually have people of substance who said, well, that's just buyer beware. If you had more than $250,000 in it, that's buyer beware. You you should have known on your own as a depositor the, the details of the bank, blah, blah, blah. Oh, horse shit. That's the reason why you have the FDIC, because yeah. it's beyond your capability. To, okay, this so... This isn't the 20s anymore, where it's on the onus of everybody to evaluate their own bank. That's the point of the FDIC insurance. That's the point of all of the regulation. If it's on everybody to evaluate their own bank, then get rid of all the regulations, get rid of all the guaranteed insurance, and get rid of all that stuff, and then just let anybody who wants to do a bank do a bank. Yeah, and that's like, uh, you know, you have a prospectus for your mutual funds, your ETFs, your variable annuities, all of your different companies. You know, you have your... Okay, you didn't read it, Bob. So, well, you didn't understand it. You're out. I can guarantee that 99.9999999% of the investors have never read a prospectus from cover to cover. 
They haven't very done few. it. Very so few. that's the reason why you have the FDIC. That's the reason why you have the PBGC, which is a Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. That's the reason why each state has their state department of insurance. So that when something goes belly up, I mean, listen, guys, I've been involved in putting insurance companies out of business. I've done it. I know I have been involved in class actions. They've been some really poorly run organizations. But that's the reason why you hire registered investment advisors that are not, I repeat, not commission-based, because we know things. We know how to say, what do I say all the time? It's not the advice we give more than it is saying, don't do that. Exactly. Yeah. Saying no is, what is it? There's a... uh... Was there a Steve Jobs phrase about that ex- that exact item? Is it's it's the thousand no's that makes the one yes so valuable? Yeah, well, in years ago, um, a friend of mine, a former friend, an acquaintance now, uh, he and I did seminars all up and down Naples and Fort Myers and Sarasota and Bradenton, and we talked about companies such as uh, Presidential Life and Executive Life because we did the research on the companies, and we would pull what's called the blue. B-L-U-E, the blue book or the blank. So when an insurance company does business in the state of Florida, they have to file their financials. Every single thing they own is available for public inspection. Every single solitary thing, including compensation for executives and everything else. We did really well. um, And we found that we did extremely well in mobile home parks with normal everyday retirees before baby boomers your silent World War II generation, because we just talk common sense. And we would show these books and say, look at this company. There's what they're invested in. It can't sustain. Yet, uh, who was it? Uh, Standard & Poor's, AM Best, Duff & Phelps, Moody's, uh, company Presidential Life and Executive Life was rated uh, A-plus and AAA rated by these companies the day before they went belly up. Same thing with this. I'm old enough, I've been here long enough where I see this is just a same story over and over and over. We made money telling people to get the hell out of these insurance companies because you're going to go belly up and don't invest in them. Same thing in uh, Tampa, Keller Financial Notes. Keller Financial Notes, uh, it was a scam operation. Um, what they did is they, they were saying, well, we're going we're gonna to lend you, we're going to issue uh, uh, subordinate debentures, but they're not regulated. So we, you don't have to file with the SEC because this is private lending. No, it's not. <laughs> it's collectivized. It's, it's, it has to be right. So, has to be regulated. so let's see. You, I'm going to lend $10,000 to Joe for a car that's really only worth $5,000. And if he doesn't pay it, we're going to hook it and tow it. But you're paying me a 50% commission? I mean, the numbers just didn't add up. And the interest on the loan was ridiculous it, as well. Yeah, it just there's no way this is, oh, but, but here's the thing. This is collateralized. Because the cars have value. Yeah, the cars have value. They have liquidation junk value. It's mark to market. Yep. It's the same thing we talked about when we first began talking. Yeah. And then the other thing was, uh, you know, you know that I, uh, I am, I, my name is Paul Trisdell, and I am the one who started the investigation, doing the dumpster diving, getting the records. I did the analysis on a company called Pentrady. Yep. And from there, a good friend of mine, Andy DeGalley, an attorney down in Tampa, um, we put together the, uh, the paper. Um, we ran it through the law firm. We wound up getting Jones Day involved and a few other firms. And we did a big, giant class action and proved that they were defrauding the elderly in, uh, in what they were, they were selling long-term care called Pentreaty. 
Um, the company is still in receivership by the state of Pennsylvania. It is a... Uh, very simply, they were just promising way more than they could deliver based on what they were charging. It was ridiculous. They it was it was the ten percent scam. They said they could do ten percent less um, claims. They did ten percent better in their underwriting. They did ten percent better in their rate of return. It was everything was ten, and I just you can't do that. And then the other thing they said, well, people will get rid of their long term care policies just like they do term life insurance because as they get older. They won't be able to afford the increasing premiums. Whoa, wait a minute. There was a smoking gun I had. I had them by their own internal memorandum saying that they were going to raise premiums even though they were telling everybody they were guaranteed and locked in. Aha, guess what? Retirees, old farts that buy long-term care policies, don't get rid of it. No. Because they know they're going to wind up using it. So as a result, everything was backwards with these guys. They did not get a 10%. They got a crappy rate of return. <laughs> everything was terrible. And they didn't get better underwriting because it was fog and mirror. If you could fog a mirror, you got the policy. Well, we, it was overwhelmingly powerful. They didn't even really do much in terms of depositions. They used what I put together as the basic economic analysis and the settlement. Then our clients were made whole. But the company had to go under because it was, it was just fraud. Well, the obligations were too high. You can't well. do it. So, yeah, you're listening to this and you're going, well, who are you? I'm Paul Truesdell. I know this business like the back of my hand. And I'm telling you, you cannot use smoke and mirror. You know, it. you take $1 and you, you take a prism of mirrors. Oh, look at that. Look at all the money. No, it doesn't exist. Crypto. Here's one other thing. I want to bring this up before we go any further. Never forget that a lot of the stuff that's going on in Silicon Valley in technology is the result of Republicans and academics shutting down something called cowboy science. This is really important. Back in the day, you had some really smart people, creative, out of their minds, and they gave us NASA. They gave us amazing technology. But then you had a couple of things happen. You had a couple of Republican senators who said, no, 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 no. We need to see proof that everything you're doing, there has to be a payoff. We're, we're funding, and you had all of these awards, you know, the, the Golden Fleece Award and all these different things. Pretty soon, there was no more cowboy science. Okay, you got to have cowboys that are really, really smart to do things. They're willing to go out and, 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 you know, go west, young man. But now you have peer review. And so, oh, well, you know, if, if you don't have somebody of your own uh, ilk doing peer review. So what happened is academics and science becomes lockstep. It's a bunch of lemmings. Where do the cowboys go? Well, it becomes a situation where nobody takes any risks. Nobody takes any risk. Which Wh risks are important to moving things forward. In the case of what we were just talking about, maybe let's take less risks as a bank. How about that? And so where did the Cowboys go? They went, Banking. They went to somewhere where they can make some money. Bingo. Yeah. If, if, you, if you can't make a substantial outsized uh, uh, amount of money or, or, or have latitude or, or whatever in doing research and R&D and stuff like that, where are you going to go? You're going to go to some place where at least you're, you can be compensated for your talents, even if it is boring as hell, which... Welcome to finance, everybody. Well, we can, and, it, and it's interesting though because that that time frame when peer review and all those uh, checks and balances amendments for R and D and all these things started to pop up in the seventies. Uh, that's when finance started to get incredibly complicated. Bingo. Because guess what? People with real brains started getting involved in this stuff. Because go back to any time period before that. Look at all the wacky stuff that happened in banking. 
a lot of it was just easily, easily preventable mistakes. Cause to be fair, the best and brightest were not really involved in it because it's boring. There was a guy down in Tampa. He was in my, in the uh, Tampa police Academy. Cause I went to uh, the police Academy in Milwaukee, transferred down to Tampa years ago, back in the seventies. And, and he and I went uh, to Academy together. I can't give you his name for uh, uh, witness protection purposes. He's not a criminal, but he's a, uh, was deep, deep, deep undercover and, and infiltrated a couple of cartels. But the, the, the thing that I used to say to everybody down there, we'll just use the universal Bob. Just I used to say, give Bob a million dollars and tell him to come back in two years. And the number of warrants that he'll have <laughs> will blow your mind. And I remember uh, a friend of mine who retired as chief down there, I can't say any more, said, uh, no, we're never going to do that because half of us will wind up going to jail. The guy was brilliant. He could have infiltrated anything. Um, so I'm a shaggy dog. I, I talk. I like to break things down into the incredibly simple. And when I give seminars and workshops, and even today, I'm going to tell you, never misconstrue simple language for lack of knowledge and expertise. If we can't communicate efficiently and effectively, we're wasting your time and ours. And I think one of the things we've done here today is we've given you some details, some deep dives on this stuff. But this is, there's nothing to worry about. This is actually turning out perfect. I'm actually, in one way, kind of glad this has happened because it showed the problem in banking with startups. It showed mismanagement at a pretty substantial level. You have to have adults running things. And sometimes... You know, it's if it if it I don't it just where there's smoke, there's fire. It's not always the case, but in this case, it, it didn't take a lot of common sense to figure it out. But the unwinding now by the FDIC, I think it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I mean, to me, it shows you that the regulations and the processes and all this stuff are are very well thought out, and and they they work. It shows you the one aspect of the modern banking system that was not reconsidered after 2008 is the FTIC insurance. If banks are required to have such high quality assets on their books to cover their deposits, that even when a, when a bank has a liquidity crisis, they don't actually lose that much money, then why not have every, every depositor insured? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like you're not, you, there's, there's minimal loss at play, right? Yep. And it, um, you know, I'm sure there are still going to be some cases where the fraud or or situation is so egregious where sticking to FDIC makes sense. Uh, you know, there are things that have happened in the past, especially in the 80s and 90s, where there were out-and-out drug banks and things like this, where there was egregious amounts of fraud, where it's like, yeah, all they're going to pay is 250 and other than that, everybody else can take a hike. Um, sure, some people got harmed, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Those circumstances make sense, but for this circum for, for for the way things operate now, it seems to all make sense. I personally don't have a big deal with it. Sure, everybody would like to have pure laissez-faire, buyer beware. It is what it is, and you know, you, everybody's responsible for their own decisions. But the reality is, we don't live in that world. If we did, with modern technology, it would be we would be so busy chasing fires, nothing would be stable, and. Uh, it just is what it is. I mean, this seems like the best outcome given the circumstances. Um, I The one thing I was worried about going into this was how qu high quality are the assets of these banks. Now that we have three, we can see yep. even the companies, even the banks that are doing, who have business relationships 
with some of the more risky people out there do seem to still have pretty high quality assets. That's including the crypto people like that's surprising. So that's good. Um, In general, this really boosts my personal confidence on uh, how well the banking system is properly capitalized and the regulations that are imposed upon the uh, type of assets that they do have on their books. Well, the problem will be that there will be some tightening of the regulations, but they'll screw that all the way down to the lowest denominator, and, and that's going to be bad. The movie, if you want to see how this works, is the old movie, I think from 80, 87, whatever it is. Uh, it's called Wall Street, Charlie Sheen. And um, who was the other guy in that movie? Didn't make a difference. Um, lost his name for a minute. Anyhow, if you look at the movie towards the very end, you see a thing called Stock Watch, and a guy says, hey, we got some unusual trading here, and, and that's what things start to unravel where they actually find that he's, he's doing insider trading. You don't see a lot of insider trading on the big, by the big boys anymore because there's so much going on, I don't think they could actually keep track anywhere near, although everything's digital. But the, but the point being is that this is not a uh, Bankman situation. That was a massive crypto fraud Political payoffs, both the Democrat made in public, the Republicans made in private, naming rights. You had these uh, influencers, you know, yada, 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 spreading the depth and breadth of, of, of uh, stink fest everywhere. But yeah, this has rattled the uh, banking industry a little bit. The Exxon Valdez, that oil spill, the BP oil spill, that rattled their industry for a while. Uh, venture capital folks, is not all that smart. They make mistakes. And so uh, a lot of people made a lot of bets and uh, big bets on big gains. But uh, yeah, you don't run a bank that way. No, you don't. And the reality is, is what you said earlier, you have to match your risk with your clientele or you have to say no to some people. And if somebody comes to your bank, if I mean, the reality is if you walk to any regional bank, that has under a couple billion dollars in assets and say, hey, I want to deposit $250 million with you. You know what most of them are going to tell you? Nope. Nope. Sorry, that does not meet our risk profile. Um, we can, they can probably work with you to do some of, uh, if, if you wanted to use one of these CDARs to distribute it among partner banks. Um, but other than that, they're going to probably tell you to go to a bigger bank because they don't have the, uh, they just don't have the, the ability to process that. Yeah, I mean, and like, for example, in here, a real simple question, and we'll, we'll give you, you, wrap it up, we'll get out of here. When you have an insurance company that issues commercial annuities, what do they have on the top end? They have a limit, don't they? Absolutely. And when you have people with millions of dollars, what do you got to do? You got to get a... You have to get an exception. And they do a deep background on... On the, on the client. They want to figure out how sticky the money is going to be, how serious it is. Uh, but also, it just may, it, all of that may may be great but that uh, the uh, the ability for them to digest the size of the annuity and the size of funds may just not be there and they may still tell you no yeah and they have to do a background on the agent that's writing it i mean i've been in business for a really long time in the 80s and 90s the aughts the tens now the 20s that's five different decades i've owned a business going back into the 60s and 70s so here's the thing you know you have to have a reputation so they look at yeah. they look at me as well our firm all of us um because they don't want, you know, shit bags, drug dealers, and that kind of stuff in the thing. But again, even if all of that checks out, they may not have the stomach for it based on their current projections, and they may decide, you know what, we just can't do that kind of business, so sorry. 
And, and I, I was very fortunate when I started in this business. There was a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Forbes. He created Forbes. And Steve Forbes is his son. Malcolm died. And I know because we were involved in the thing, our firm had a small cut of the action, okay? Very small. But this is when the estate tax was huge. And it would have put the Forbes everything out of business. So they underwrote him for a massive life insurance policy for estate tax purposes. And by God, the damn thing was in place about nine months and he died. Now, no one company could afford that risk. No, no. He had to collectivize it among multiple insurance agencies. Yeah, I had or, uh, companies. I had just started in the business. And so I was part of that whole thing where, I mean, it was the old Lloyds. and I mean, everybody was coordinating who was going to take hope, who was going to be the lead in a thing and how the underwriting was going to be done. And so that experience allowed me when we were doing the class actions, and I, can, I just can't give you the names of all the things that we did. I knew from then, because when you're in the seat watching what's going on, like, sure. oh, somebody's got to coordinate this and coordinate that. And well, okay, who did the blood test? Well, do we, did you got enough for, for a second? Oh, I want a third opinion. I mean, holy crap. The guy was healthy as a horse and up and died of a heart attack. Yep. Had, you know, big, uh, uh, basically one of those pieces of plaque broken, uh, had a Widowmaker done. Yeah, that's a, uh, I think you'd call that a big oof moment. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> it's like all these young athletes and, and that rapper that died. You know, that's just a normal thing. Everybody just uh, dropping dead in their 20s. He was quite a bit older, of course. I would hope so. Yeah. So you got anything else? We'll get out of here. We've been doing this for quite a while. No, I, th I think that covers it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people will talk in the coming days about, uh, these other banks that are not nearly as interesting as Silicon Valley Bank. And they will also talk about them to kind of take the heat off of Silicon Valley Bank for their own people creating the run on their own bank that has caused this domino effect. Um, the, the other thing is you may have a few other smaller banks that have similar problems in the coming days um, or in weeks. Uh, we'll see. There's, uh, I won't go into any of the details or any of that stuff right now, but there's uh, different ratios and different calculations that are done for um, the health of the ratios at some at, at banks, and a lot of the, the majority of these companies are public and, and they they report them. So there's a list I think on Market Watch. I don't know how legit it is. Uh, Market Watch being a questionable uh, uh, market news organization, but anyway, they uh, provided a list of I think the ten or twenty. Uh, uh, banks that have, let's call it, decreasing short-term uh, available assets to cover their deposits. And there, there's a, quite a few banks that are, are not in great shape. Um, so my guess is behind the scenes, the Fed, and uh, in coordination with Treasury and everybody, will make sure that these banks have appropriate access to liquidity to prevent further uh, dominoes unless they want to forcefully put people out of business for being idiots. Um, I wouldn't put that past anybody, but considering the PR and the news and the acceleration of the distribution of information and fear, um, I would guess that the plan in place now is we have these three banks situated, we're processing them, it's no big deal, everybody's made whole, and now behind the scenes there's going to be uh, greasing of the wheels very similar to... <laughs> very similar to um, uh, aside from additional regulation and things like this that will definitely come into play. 
um, the number of, uh, well, the other aspect I totally didn't mention is the fact that a part of that, the Trump era uh, rollback in regulation was, was uh, uh, stress tests were no longer required for banks under a certain size. So that's going to come back. Banks are going to have to be, are going to, they're going to stress, you know, they're just going to game play. Like what happens if you do this? What happens if you do that? Um, as all the big banks do. So stress testing is going to come back into play again. Um, the asset mix and all that sort of stuff is going to add a necessity change, uh, especially for smaller banks that can have easier chance of runs. Um, banks that have existing scenarios that are on the edge or close, uh, the likelihood is there will be probably, if I were to guess, um, either a new facility out of treasury or, or access to existing facilities out of treasury to enable them uh, low-cost loans um, or swaps based on these assets where they normally wouldn't take them. Uh, we're thinking things like mortgage-backed securities, uh, long-term loans, things like this, uh, that will be very similar to your um, uh, QE that we had in previous years post-2008 quantitative easing which QE was a fancy term for the Fed buying assets off of banks' books to give them cash so that they were better capitalized, basically taking that long-term risk, giving it to the Federal Reserve that can, that can uh, play those terms out to their full maturity, and then giving the banks cash so that they were much more stable and secure. Um, some banks didn't like that because they had to sell off good assets to the Federal Reserve, which reduced their ability to make good money on loans that were high quality but in this kind of circumstance that type of facility and that type of program um, one would not be anywhere near as large as the big banks uh, dealt with years ago but in uh, they would definitely it seems to me like that would probably also be a, a good way to deal with this for banks like uh, what was it one of the larger banks I saw on the list is, is a bank that I actually use as Ally Bank they have uh, two, three hundred billion dollars in assets, and it looks like their their ratio is uh, very, very, very questionable. Um, so, of course, they're the old. Uh, I think it was uh, General Motors Credit. That's where they they were spun out of the two thousand eight financial crisis, and they completely rebranded and whatever. Anyway, so point is, is that you're, you're going to have a lot of banks that are, are generally pretty small. Um, that are probably going to need some liquidity bumps, and that's how it'll be done. People, I'm sure, will make a big deal out of it, but it's just, I think, a prudent measure to to keep these, prevent chaos. That's really what this is about. And in, in the end, nobody really cares about the little guy. Nobody cares about any of this stuff. All they care about is preventing chaos, and chaos as it spills into the financial system, as it spills into housing, your investments, jobs, or in the case of uh, the government, you know, above all that, above all those masters that they have to serve to, they're also serving the political master. People want to get reelected. People don't want to get voted out of office. People don't want to be harassed by their constituents. So while there may be some um, ultra laissez-faire libertarians who want this to be shaken out according to true free market uh, principles, that's not going to happen. Those people don't have a very significant voice. At the end of the day... People want their money, and that's what's going to happen. My name is Paul Truesdell. Joining me is uh, Paul Truesdell. I'm the elder. He's the younger. And uh, this is just a simple way in which we promote ourselves. This is the Paul Truesdell podcast. And uh, the reality is 
Uh, we're pretty smart. We're experienced. We've been around the block a few times, and this is our way of being able to show you that, uh, yeah, we know what we're doing. We're not going to do these workshops and seminars and stand in front of people. Uh, we do it by way of a podcast. Um, we're pretty stable. We've been doing this a long time. We have the morals, mores, and ethics to uh, back it up. And, uh, you know, if you're one of those people who goes, yeah, you guys really know a lot of stuff and you can rattle it off, uh, give us a ring. Now, we don't answer the phone because we don't have time for it. We don't have a receptionist uh, intentionally answering, although we do have receptionists. We have a staff. Don't worry about that. But the point is, um, yeah, no caller ID, nobody in your – if it's not in our system, we're not going to talk to you. So if you want to get in, call 212-433-2525. That's 212 212- or 33325 or send a text message. You've got to get permission to uh, speak with somebody because we work. We don't have time for that nonsense. The other thing is I want to tell you who we don't work with. We are not interested in working with those who are know-it-alls or the absolute dumbbells in life, the uh, valley bros and the valley girls who are of all ages who go, oh, you're just so mean. We just you know, can't work with those people. So with that, we're out of here. I'm going to bring on, like I always do, a little Wagner, uh, the composer of uh, Ride of the Valkyries. He wrote it back on July 23rd, 1851. With that, enjoy our little outgo here. It takes about eight minutes. Enjoy the ride with that. Hope you had a good time. Paulie, are we done? I think for now we're good. I'm sure in the next couple of weeks we'll have some interesting revelations changes of events or turns but uh i think we're good now and for those who who are listening on third-party podcast players remember the real good stuff is with our clients adios we're out of there Who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. There's a garbage can in the northeast corner. You drop the bags and leave. Mr. Madison, what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but uh, 
You remain one. People got no respect for the brain dead?